This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, accompanied by my crazy duo. Both wearing tights today, by the way. Just for your eyes only. <laughs> Jeffrey Simpson and, of course, Terry South, our resident uh, cynic. Is that what we're going to call you from here on out? The resident cynic. I hope not. He doesn't live here. Oh, he doesn't? No. The non-resident cynic. We need it. We need somebody to have a different set of eyes than ours that are all just cloudy. Because I watched with the a C- chance of I watched the CPAC meeting yesterday with Bannon and Priebus. Right. Holy cow! It's working. Did you? <laughs> As they said it, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's the fun. They have such a completely different view right. of the world, not the world, but what Events. they're doing. But it actually. So my earlier hypothesis that they're creating all this smoke and then building something underneath it. That's what they're doing. They're they're very confident that they're going to build a lot of stuff while right. everyone's distracted. Or they just refuse to acknowledge that anything reported may have been true. Yeah, well, yeah. That too, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Either way, you want to details, look at it. Details, details. It it's amazing to watch because I've never listened much to Steve. I mean, I don't, listen, I don't go watch Steve Bannon talk. He doesn't. And it's incredible. It's not his job. He doesn't want to be on TV. That's no. probably something completely against what he'd ever want to do, though he was pretty good at it. And he may have given Saturday Night Live enough material. Yeah. Because that was always the thing was that oh, yeah. he couldn't be a character on Saturday Night Live because he's never now, in front of the camera. Rosie O'Donnell's going to have something to work with. They might be able to copy some mannerisms, except he just was kind of a normal guy. It's also interesting to see him uh, interact with Priebus. Because they supposedly hate each other, but they really don't seem to hate each other. And they even disagreed in front of everybody They're, on things. People can get along in public places for short periods of time. The, they also revere President Trump. I mean, there is complete adoration for the president from these two people, which, I mean, I guess is to be expected, except, right. I mean, it was, they just kept going on and on. So were they selling the message? And on and on. They did a good job. Well, the funny thing, though, is I don't even know that they had to – they, they were already in the group of people that were already well, right. believers. I mean they're in a very hospitable location yeah. talking to you know their team. So, But in a way, they're very right because here's what they're saying. How long was it that we were talking about Trump being a fool and Trump's an idiot that couldn't get anything done? Do you remember? And he was, it was the most mismanaged campaign you've ever seen in the history of the world. And yet – and they said – and yet here he sits right. in the presence. None of them expected that to happen. Right. They leave that part uh-huh. out. Right, but right. none of them expected that to happen. And the irony is they're still talking. He's like – and again, here we start the, the presidency and we're the most disorganized office you've ever seen in the history of the world. Right. And all you hear is how confused – and messed up and how much infighting there is. And yet we're going to do the same thing because they still don't get it. We got a bunch of real dummies. <laughs> it's crazy. And then the media just hates that too. So it's crazy. What's going on here? What's happened to this world? 
That's why. That's why we do this show. So we'll be talking about, we'll get a little uh, Trump date, I'm sure, coming up in a bit. Also, we're going to get into the changing nature of America's irreligious. Mm. Those that are religiously not affiliated, it's, that group is growing. We'll find out why, what's going on. What's, why can't, why aren't religions, why aren't the churches maintaining their base? They're slipping away. Is it because of technology? Is it because of political stances on certain issues? We'll find out. Get into that interesting discussion. Plus, because it's Friday, you know, throughout the show, we'll be talking movies. We've got a lot to cover today. So let's hit, uh, let's hit it, Terry. Let's get to the headlines. What's going on around the rest of the country? According to a report on CNN, the FBI rejected a recent request from the White House to publicly discredit recent reports about alleged communications between Donald Trump, associates, and Russians during the 2016 presidential election. White House officials had reportedly sought out the FBI and additional agencies to say that the reports were untrue. Certain procedures limit communications between the White House and the FBI while investigations are pending. So there's certain lines that are drawn. They might have crossed the line. I don't know. But uh, there is a report saying that that Priebus, after the FBI said there were some doubts, they wanted them to go kind of do off-the-record interviews with reporters telling them right, this please, is the way yeah. we really feel, and they said we were not going to do any of that not kind of stuff. Because there's an investigation going on. Yeah. They're not going to get involved. President Trump wants to expand the U.S. nuclear arsenal to become the top of the pack, he says. Hmm. In a Thursday interview with Reuters, the president additionally revealed that he believes the U.S. has fallen behind in its atomic weapons capacity, and he plans to confront Russian President Vladimir Putin on the deployment of a cruise missile in violation of a recent arms treaty. Reuters also reported that Trump said he is very angry about North Korea's repeated missile tests and suggests a missile defense system protecting U.S. allies like Japan and South Korea could be a potential solution. Hmm. Maybe an Iron Dome Plus yeah. type situation. Like my, yeah, like like my new in, phone. Cool. What's in Israel? Your new phone. What do you well, no, I'm, getting phone? A, I'm getting a phone that's a plus. An Iron Dome for your phone? Yeah, it's an Iron Dome phone. Nice. Steve Bannon made his first public appearance since Donald Trump became president Thursday at the annual Conservative Political Action Conference. The Washington Post reports the president's chief strategist said Trump's goal is the deconstruction of the administrative state, mm. meaning dismantling systems of taxation, regulation, and trade. Bannon and Trump picked his cabinet nominees with that deconstruction in mind. Wow. Where does Ben Carson fit? Uh, you know, he's just a neurosurgeon. Okay. He picked the cabinet. Was, yeah. Just one of the cabinet. Um, and finally tonight, witches worldwide reportedly plan to cast a spell that would bind Trump and all who abet him. Is that right? Abet? A-B-E-T? Abet him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a. It's apparently a witch thing. And the folks at ChristianNationalism.com plan to fight back with a day of prayer to protect the president. The witches are instructed by writer, speaker, and, quote, magical thinker Michael M. Hughes to cast their binding spell on every night of the waning crescent moon, such as the one tonight, using an unflattering photo of Trump. Wow. Okay. Where would they find one of those? <laughs> Oh, they're everywhere. Uh, in the other corner, ChristianNationalism.com commands Christian soldiers to counter the witchcraft by reading from Psalms 23. And if that wasn't enough, there could possibly be chaos magicians in the mix oh, who boy. are actually for Trump. Pro chaos magicians. Yeah, pro, yeah okay. Yeah. Pro Trump. So chaos. who will prevail? Trump's mortal fate hangs in the balance. Only time will tell. Wow. That's going on tonight. So if you feel sort of a... Uh, a weird vibe. Maybe some sort of disturbance in the force, whatever that is for you. Yeah. Interesting. It might be people doing stuff. 
in a now, park somewhere with a drum circle. I'm not sure if I were a witch <laughs> that I would mess with Trump. Right. You know what I mean? I mean – Many would say that Donald's already out on a lot of hunts. There might be some sort of weird sort of extra ordinary type power going on. Look at his hair. I'm not sure what that is. Wrong. Could have some it's sort hair. of it's all his... deal um, happening. It's a uh, – the, the CPAC is a wonderful insight into the the thinking of the the, the White House. Yes. Yesterday was the first time I actually felt like I had a glimpse inside their actual thinking. You know what I mean? Not yeah. their spinning even. Right. Because they honestly – they're talking to their people and it, it just blew my mind. Not, I mean not politically but the, they – Well, not, the, they have a plan. Not always their people. No, no, no. Right. last year they held this. Trump was running and he backed out because there was going to be a protest. Right. In the middle of if he was if he was going to speak, then people were going to try to disrupt the place. So he right. decided not to go. Right, but that's because I mean, there's also pro Mitt Romney. There's pro there's, but the reality is a lot of those anti-Trumpers are doing nothing but either staying quiet, mm. you know, with their tail between their legs hidden away, or they're embracing him. Right. I mean, a lot of them have been embracing him. So they're they're staying quiet or going against what apparently was their moral stand. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. That's what they said. That's what the the never Trumper said. It was a moral stand. But the good thing about it is um, there's still protests. I guess. (laughs) Wrong. So if you're one of the the congressmen or women or senators that are out there that have to face your constituency, it's terrifying. Yellowmatic. It's on the Washington Post. Yellowmatic. It's a great – Bipartisan, all these videos of politicians being yelled at. It's great fun. It's crazy. (laughs) It's it's a wild time. Um, So, but where do you go? I mean, uh, a lot of these, a lot of these senators and people that don't want to face their constituencies, they they just would rather run away. And Bernie Sanders is taking that on. He's like, no, 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 no. If if you got to face your people. If you don't have the guts to face your constituents, then you shouldn't be in the United States Congress. And if you need police at the meetings, that's fine. Have police at the meetings. Have security at the meetings. But don't use that as an excuse to run away from your constituents after you support repealing the Affordable Care Act, throwing 20 million people off of health insurance, doing away with pre-existing conditions. If you're going to do all of those things, answer the questions that your constituents have. Hmm. There you go. Yeah. I mean, all, all they would really have to do... And it seems like such a simple thing. Just have a plan for what you're going to do with Obamacare and then present it because it seems like about 70 percent of the issues are that issue. Well, it's the speed of wanting to replace it as fast as possible. They've been talking about and then not having some sort of organization to do that is, as you're saying, is the biggest problem. So you just leave this big hole that then is filled with this vacuum of fear. And I think if all of a sudden you said this is our plan. Because the idea of repealing it is no longer viable, according to John Boehner. Right. It's not going to happen. Right. And uh, – which he can say freely because he's no longer politically yeah. elected anywhere and he can now talk. And apparently he was golfing and even was throwing back some drinks, loosened him up a bit. <laughs> so he said a bunch of stuff that you normally wouldn't hear them say. Right. But, I mean, Communicate. So I've I figured it out. I know what I would do if I was a, a senator right. and I had these angry people. 
You know what I would do? I would seriously do this. The Matt Townsend plan. Go. I, this is my plan, and I think anybody should do it. I wouldn't – because you have to meet with your people. Yeah. But you don't have to have a town hall meeting. So I would have five-minute meetings, hmm. and I would have them in one by one, five minutes, sit down. You got five minutes. Yeah. And I would take it I, if I had to be reamed. I would rather do it privately five minutes at a time than publicly with a thousand people and cameras. Boom. But, but problem don't, solved. Don't and, you think that's what the constituents want? No. They don't want to meet one-on-one. No, no, no. What I'm saying is don't you think they want to yeah. meet with them publicly yeah. to Because that's the way them? you used to do it because that's the town hall and that was the big meeting and it's the most efficient way to get through it. So how do you get past the characterization that you, the elected official, are hiding? But I'm not hiding. I'm going to meet with you face-to-face. Would you rather not but meet with also, your senator face-to-face? You're also limiting the number of people that can no. actually speak to you not because really. you only have so many meetings a day. Well, but watch this, though. Now they're just they're avoiding gonna, it, right? Well, they're not going to start at 8 a.m. with five-minute meetings and go to, like, 10 o'clock at night. That's Why? Not, because they won't do that. Well, I know, but see, that's what I'm saying is you either are going to look bad for not doing anything. Right. Or I would say, great, I'm here. I've got three days, five-minute yeah. meetings, line up. And if right. you want to stand in line for the next three days, I'm totally willing to meet with you. And then one by one, and guess what I'd hear? I'd hear the same thing. 500 times, but they wouldn't get the beautiful benefits of the press, but they couldn't say I'm not meeting with you. In fact, I'm giving you more than you'd ever get in a town hall. You get five minutes with me, your duly elected senator. Now go. Who wouldn't want to meet with their senator? It's a great idea. I'm telling you, highly trained professional right here. You were pointing to me or Terry on that I was that pointing one? to Terry on that Okay. <laughs> no, would they, tell me that wouldn't. Then if I you think, really want to meet. I think you can't get away from the idea that you're not holding a town hall because that's what people are you know that's what's being held that's I understand what, what you're, I, I understand what you're saying but if you change that it looks like you're trying to move away from that confrontation unless i say what i want to do is actually solve your problem so you bring me your problem and you what's your name mr jones and i'd write mr jones's name down right. and then i'd say it's it's obamacare what's your fear do you know what what's your phone number Great. I am going to personally go have that answered, and my people will call you back. And if Next. they're not if they're not happy with that, then they're that's not the real issue. The real exactly. issue is they want the attention. And so, if what they want is the town hall where they can have video cameras and everyone a beat down, and nobody listens and nobody talks, that's totally ineffective. By the way, this is actually a mediation technique because when group dynamic falls apart, then you don't go to group anymore, and it's called shuttle mediation. And I'm just going to meet with you. And then I'm going to leave, and then I'm going to meet with your enemy, and I'm going to meet with you, and I'm just going to do it one by one. And it just works. It's so weird. I should be a senator. <sighs> no, I shouldn't. That would be horrible. That would be horrible. But I'm telling you, you cannot not meet with your constituencies. You've got to meet with them. So, And it's not like you're that busy that you can't find a day. Are you kidding me? You can find a day. In this crazy environment, you've spent six years, some have spent 30 years not having to meet with anybody ever. I mean, not have to have this tension. So now's the time you pay. And if you have to have three days of just sitting there meeting, let's do it. And if it's 12-hour days, let's do it. Come on. It's not that hard. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're talking about the changing nature of America's uh, faithful and their relationship with their church. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Religion in America is diverse. However, many Americans have started a trend to trend away from religion. Why the largest category is still Protestant? Um, while the largest category is still Protestant, the category of none of the above has actually begun to increase. This new group of non-religious nuns, they call them, N-O-N-E-S, could change our society. And here to talk with us is Dr. Richard Flory. Dr. Um, Flory is the uh, Senior Director of Research and Evaluation at the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Dr. Flory, thank you for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So these nuns, we call them, N-O-N-E-S, they, it's going up. More and more people are not affiliated with any religious uh, organization. Right, and it's important to, to uh, designate that they're N-O-N-E-S. We talk about that yeah. uh, jokingly in our shop all the time. We actually have a project on Catholic Sisters, so we do have to just <laughs> differentiate. You have to differentiate between nuns, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. So, and um, well, I think there, there are a lot of reasons, um, and I've... Our, through our research, we've articulated a few, um, but I think first I would say that if we look at the history of, of the U.S., we probably, the way we think about how many people have been affiliated with religious groups over the 20th century throws us off from what historically that's been. So there's been some research by sociologists and historians about this that, uh, you know, in the supposed founding era and, and following of our country, there was you know, high religious attendance and all that, and then that's not necessarily true. So in the 20th century, in a lot of ways, it was the most religious century or one of the more religious periods mm. in our time, in our life, in the life of the country. But since really the, the data that's really been coming out lately is shown a, a more recent increase in this category of so-called religious nuns, and that term, just so people get it, is really is is derived from survey questions that ask people what their religious affiliation is. It used to be called religious preference. And they'll list down, you know, all the different religious traditions. And then there'll be something called other, and then there'll be something called none of the above mm. or nothing in particular. And so that's really where it comes from. And it really dates back to the 60s when, somebody, when, a, when a sociologist said, hey, we need to look at this category. But lately it's been been important because of the what appears to be a, a fairly rapid increase from the late uh, from like 2007 uh it's increased from about 16 to 23 through 14 is about 23 percent now wow and just like and that's actually so, a few years yeah, yeah and it's actually and it, and it depends on what what who what poll you're looking at uh, that's pew numbers and then the prri's public religion research institute now has it at since 2017 i think the the, uh, the report at the end of the year was um, 25%. And then among young adults, the so-called millennials, it's it's just over a third uh, that of them are, are unaffiliated with religious tradition. So, I, I, I mean, the, the kind of the reasons I, that we've been talking about is are, are multiple, but the ones we really think are important are, first, there's this kind of flattening of authority structures across across all sectors of society and then because and a lot of this is because of digital revolution people can get knowledge anywhere yeah uh, and and so you don't you don't necessarily need that authority of whatever sort in particular in this case religious authority to tell you what's right or wrong or how to how to think about the bible or whatever uh, I, we interviewed one pastor an african american pastor she told us that she, she routinely has her her members in the pews 
fact-checking her sermon on their phones, <laughs> which is hilarious. See, that happens as a parent, for sure, but I never thought of yeah. it as a pastor. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think I think it's a similar process, right? It's like, I mean, I, I, as a parent, it would be difficult. How do you, you know, you have to argue against the whole internet. Right, exactly. Um, and so, and then, so, secondly, I think that there's, in general, in, in, in American culture, there's become, been a decline in the positive view of large scale social institutions. And a lot of this is because of scandals. I mean, if you can go back uh, several years to Enron and all the big corporate scandals, uh, scandals within, uh, you know, just sort of political, uh, well, I guess scandals, but also, you know, disaffiliation of from political parties don't like it. And then now if you look at it in the political sphere, this big split, people are turned off by politics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Religion in particular has a bad brand in that way because of scandals within that, whether that's sex scandals or money scandals or whatever. As interesting as we've talked to people where religion, there's they have so much competition for their time. Um, that you know they have to work and they have to take their kids to soccer on the weekends and they do this and they're, they're and they're all over the place and then so their their attendance at church or synagogue just becomes one more social obligation rather than a place where they can go and pause and reflect um, and then finally I think probably behind all of it is the uh, Americans value personal choice probably over everything and uh, and it, thinking particularly about young people. They've been brought up, many young people have been brought up to think about religion as something that could potentially be viable for them, but it's something they need to make up their own mind about, and their parents have taught them that. Mm. And uh, if that's your starting point, then you're going to view religion as something that you can take or leave, uh, modify, customize, whatever, in, a, in whatever ways you want. So I think those are kind of the, the main kinds of larger drivers behind this uh, this this disaffiliation trend is it? I mean, because it's it's also uh, wasn't one of the statistics uh, also about the fact that they don't even like value the need for it. Like, well, I don't know if it's valuing the need, but it, it was thinking that uh, that religious institutions are even helpful. I mean, is, yeah, well, isn't that dropping as well? That um, yeah, I, we're not even I, seeing I, it as a viable you know tool. Right, and uh, and it's I'm finishing up a book, hopefully in the next month or so, with a colleague of mine on young adult religion, and which is based on national representative sample and, and interviews with with subsets of that sample. And and what's interesting is, I mean, there's there's multiple trends in it, including this decline trend, but there's also some uh, for for people that are cheering cheering the future of religion on. There are positive signs as well, but uh, but there's this kind of overriding sense of it doesn't it just doesn't matter to me and some people would frame it in interviews as you know i think it's important for some people but i i just don't i just don't see it and yeah. uh but then that's paired with this weird kind of other thing where they in the abstract they they will tell you when we ask them um do you think that the religion you know, may, I think we framed it as um, as mainstream religion is has a positive role in society and things like that. And they'll say yes, hmm. but that generally doesn't include them. Yeah. And so you know, it's it's kind of a weird thing. So in the abstract, it's good as long as it doesn't impose too much stuff on people. But 
it's good in the sense that it can it has the potential to help people. But when it comes to rules and regulations and following this and this is how you have to be, they don't like that. And you mentioned the millennials. I guess there's a, there's an even wider turn away from religion with the millennial age than than the others. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's 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 somewhat. It's it depends on how you class. I mean define millennials right. but yeah it's 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 over it's over a third now i think i think in our in our sample in our sample is basically an age subset of the broader millennial age group um it's like 35 percent, and i think it's roughly that across the whole category of millennials and i some of that is the honestly i think there's a lot of ways to think about that one is that People just all those things that I just mentioned before in, in affect them, and, and they don't see the point of it. But I think part of it is um, is an institutional problem. It's an organizational problem that that young people are good detectors of baloney, mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 they know when they're being put on. And they know when there's something there, and they and and, it, and that goes both ways in the sense of not just trying to phony up a nice worship service for them, but I, they don't they they're good at picking up on hypocrisy in that. And I think this last election, we've heard a lot of that. We we're, we're just finishing up a project on innovative religion in L.A. and Seoul, Korea, and um, and so we we as sociologists would call it, we're selecting on the dependent variable, which is worth looking at successful innovative groups to understand how they're managing to do that. And there are a lot that are managing to do that. And and some of the things we've heard shortly after the election, we talked to some otherwise evangelical groups, small local groups, probably 200 to 300 members in them. And they were shocked. And they were shocked at the lack of connection between evangelical values and who the majority of evangel- white evangelicals voted for. And oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and whatever you believe about politics, I think that on that sort of and these are these are highly committed religious people. If you extrapolate that out to people that are marginal, that are kind of interested, that are moving away, that's in my view just going to push them a little bit further away. So I think so I think there is an organizational problem that isn't really about belief per se. Mm-hmm. It's about how belief gets put into practice for people, and they and they're good at watching how that works. And and when it doesn't match up to what they, how they understand the Bible, um, then, then they're 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 gone. Um, and so in a lot of ways, for these evangelicals, evangelicalism has done a very good job at training its young people. But now that training is, in a way, haunting them because they're good at, at, at reading and understanding the Bible, and they don't see the, the matchup all the time. No, in fact, um, and I've seen that here, you know, with LDS as well, where mm-hmm. there's this—because there's been a lot of political issues that also um, might, I guess— border on moral issues and right. or are moral issues but then there's this weird almost blurring of what is a political stance and what is an actual mm-hmm. ideology and it it doesn't right. seem like they it seems like many times we're choosing what's right politically but not choosing what's right you know morally right and i think and that's what you know each each religious tradition has they have a longer tradition of what that is but i think in our in our center, we've talked a lot about we're just in a time of what we're framing as in, incredible social organizational flux. In that not not everything is up in the air, but there's a lot of 
a lot of opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of questioning, um, and it, it goes up and down the age range. And and people, and I think we see this, um, you know, examples of this in the last election. You know, there's people like, hey, we've been forgotten. We need to be paid attention to, and these these institutions need to pay attention to us. And that goes across the board, whether it's business or government or, or religious and they don't feel like they're being paid attention to. And so, you know, that issue of how do you how do you work out what a moral issue is, a theological issue and a political issue is important. And I think honestly, I think that that groups would be more successful if they honestly address the difficulty of doing it. Yeah. No, um, right. One of one of the things that I've we've seen I've seen for years and is that people will tell us things like they are they would rather see somebody who's religious be authentically religious about whatever their tradition is and so in a in an interfaith prayer and they're they're the muslim or the jewish person they're in that group pray that prayer mm-hmm. don't try to pray some sort of bland yeah. bland non prayer. yeah right yeah, just own who you are. I mean, everybody accepts that. I mean, particularly younger people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah you don't seem fake. You're not that. being fake. Yeah, exactly. And so I think I think all of that combined leads to this really interesting place where where we are right now. And it's I mean, it to predict the future would be fraught <laughs> with all sorts of problems. Oh, but yeah. I, I mean, I, I I do think that there's there are opportunities for for religious institutions, and but they just have to figure them out. Yeah, and, and be, be willing, willing to figure them out. Yeah, and be real and be real about them. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Flory. Richard is a senior director of research and evaluation at the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture. And he's talking to us about uh, some pretty amazing statistics about what we call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those that actually don't affiliate. They have no affiliation with religion. And the numbers are going up. More and more are unaffiliated Religiously, especially in that in the millennial group, about a third of millennials would see themselves as not affiliated with anybody, with anything, nothing to do with it. And uh, we're talking about why. Uh, stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about the changing nature of America's irreligious, those that uh, really mark themselves as having no relationship, no affiliation, and uh, and, and really, I guess, no connection um, to religious organizations or institutions. And we are joined by Dr. Richard Flory. He is a senior director of research and evaluation at the University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture. He's a sociologist who researches and focuses on religious and cultural change. And uh, again, thank you, Dr. Flory, for your time. Yes, it's fun fun to talk. This is an interesting thing because on my show, I, I end up talking with a lot of people and find that more and more are talking about spirituality and mm-hmm. they're much more spiritual but they don't like to be seen as religious. <laughs> yeah. You know is is that is that a big part of this are are these nuns n o n e s going to are they are they going to spirituality still or are they just avoiding it in general? Well that yeah I mean I think that's 
there's that term I'm spiritual but not religious is uh, is kind of a catchphrase and it and it the way it gets talked about in media is makes it sound like it's way more prevalent than it is at least in our research and and um, yes there are some people that are that are pursuing that um, and I think it depends I who you are and what your background is. Hmm. I mean, you know, you're going to be more likely to do that if, if you want to include something like that in your life, which, which in my view would suggest that you have more, the bigger group of that would be that, that have some sort of background in, in a religious tradition, whatever that is. Um, but, you know, particularly this, I'm just thinking right now of the this book we're finishing up with young adults is that that's really not what's going on. They, they, well, let's put it. This, let me frame that slightly differently. It's kind of going on, but it's not going on in any regular or systematic way. Huh. So when people say they're they're spiritual, because we actually asked these young adults this, we said, you know, have you heard the, heard of the phrase spiritual but not religious? And if they say yes or no, we pursue that question. And there's a wide range of of, of answers to that that they gave us. But um, on average, what I would say is that. There's a couple. There's a few different responses. To that one is they are talking themselves into that category as we've introduced it to them, and they mm. go, "Yeah, I guess that's what I am." And then, secondly, they think it's a bogus category, and it's just one. One, one young man said to us, "Well, I think that's an answer. That sounds like a Ms. America question as an answer." <laughs> you know, like and uh, which is a great line. Yeah. And and then and then there are those who say yes, but then when you pursue them on what kinds of things do you do? And there's no, there's, I mean, there are, there's always some that have some sort of regular spiritual practice, but in general, it's not. It's idiosyncratic to the individual. And this gets back to that, that issue I mentioned earlier on, where this sort of um, flattening of authority and access to knowledge is like you, in a lot of ways, they're their own authority on this. Right. So they seek out what they want. They may or may not meditate. Most people we talked to didn't meditate as a spiritual practice. They did it to calm their, relax. Yeah, calmed for a few minutes or whatever, but it's, they don't really view it as a as a as a spiritual thing. Although on this other project I have, they there is a big there's clearly a group that does that. So so it's kind of all over the map. But in but other than for sp- particularly committed people, it's much more idiosyncratic to the individual, hmm. and it's kind of pick and choosy. Um, and even even among people that are more religiously committed, there's not a particularly Strong overall, there's not a particularly strong spiritual practice embedded in their lives hmm. where at, at a particular time of the day they pray or read their Bible or whatever it may be, but really rather you ask them if they pray and they say, yeah, I, I throw up a prayer every once in a while, you know, or or whatever. Or I, I try to pray for my friends, but it's like when you ask them about it, it's it's kind of as they Nebulous, feel it. yeah. Yeah, as, as they feel it, as it comes to their mind, uh, which... But not as a practice. Should, right, but in some ways it shouldn't... Yeah, it's like they don't set aside this time. And there's, there is a movement within different, particularly among Christian groups, about around spiritual development. But I don't... That doesn't seem to be really catching on in a really broad way. Yeah. Um, do, yeah do you, which oh, go ahead. You know, makes kind of kind of makes sense to me in, in a way, but... It's it's not it goes against this argument of I'm spiritual but not religious. I mean it just kind of I mean in some ways it's a it's a it's a holding category. Yeah, and it depends on where, whether they're going to go in or out or just stay in that kind of 
liminal space of, yeah, I'm spiritual, whatever that means. It seems like it's something, too, that pleases your mother, right? Like, so mom likes, yeah. mom likes to hear that I'm not going to church, but mom, I believe in God. I throw up a prayer now and then. I'm still yeah. spiritually attuned. I'm just not connected. Um, yeah. it, it, let me ask you if this is – because I know um, the numbers have got to be weird, too, because forever people maybe have been affiliated with a church but mm-hmm. never practiced it. And um, so are the numbers shifting dramatically, meaning are people actually like are are, because I know a lot of the Catholics take a big hit in those that that maybe are moving away. Um, But is it is it more that they're just no longer saying they're affiliated? They're not they're not using the term. Well, I'm Catholic. Well, how often do you go to mass? Well, about every decade. Um, is it <laughs> yeah. so? Are they just no longer being affiliated? They're they're disassociating themselves, or is it is it actually they they really are are not into any religion at all? Does that make sense? It, it, yeah, it does. And it's it's sort of both of those. And um, in, in this young adult religion book, we're finishing up because this mainly it's the most fresh on my mind because I have to get it done. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, is, 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 you know, there are those that have either from the beginning of this project or, or have throughout the project, it was, it was a 10 year project that they've dropped. They've either never were religious or have dropped out and now can completely consider themselves not religious. Huh. And that means they don't affiliate. They don't generally don't go, although probably they go if their parents or, you know, if they're with their parents for Christmas or whatever holiday or whatever, uh, they don't go to services. Um, there is a there's another group that says yeah i'm still i'm catholic or i'm jewish or i'm just christian or whatever but they never attend right uh and so there's an identity so so those people wouldn't be picked up by the nuns because the nuns thing is all about affiliation and so if you say you're a catholic but you never attend you're still being picked up as a catholic in that survey but if you track, go the next step and ask them their attendance, then then actually the that number, at least in our work, gets bigger to over half young adults don't ever attend hmm. services. Interesting. That's, that's a big number. That is. Um, and so, you know, and then but then there's but then there's these confounding things like some people that say they're not religious will occasionally go to religious services. Yeah. Which totally throws you off. Um, it's true. But, yeah, but they go, I mean, they go for different kinds of things. They go for you know, the experience. They go for the, for the, for the, uh, the friendships that they've developed or they go with friends. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what's happening there, but, you know, they, they enjoy it for whatever they get out of it. What, what do you see? Did you hear the comments from the Pope um, that I thought were very insightful to what we're talking about where hypocrisy, he basically was saying hypocrisy is worse than atheism, right? So to believe and to be a hypocrite is worse than being a non-believer. And like you brought up earlier with these young adults or or, uh, millennials, they do have this hypocrisy radar out that that it's just offensive. Um, So is is a lot of this, is some of this just because we're being more and more hypocritical and they're picking it up? I think that's part of it, but I think it's... I think it's bigger than that. I think there's, again, it's related to what I was mentioning earlier. There's there's an organizational problem. I think it may or may not be the actual message, but how that message is delivered. 
And so maybe that relates to, to hypocrisy, um, uh, you know, that, that if the message is being delivered in what's perceived as a hypocritical um, way, uh, where, whereas, you know, you're, the way you act goes against what you say you believe, mm-hmm. um, then that's, then I'm sure that's a lot of, it. I mean, I, I had a project about 12, 13 years ago where that was a key element that came out in, in, and this was all about younger Christians and, um, and across the different ways that we understood them and categorized them, there was this underlying idea that they were seeking out the most authentic form of Christianity they could find. But for them, that authority still lay outside themselves. So it was the tradition of Christianity they were seeking out, not my personal experience that they were seeking out. Hmm. And so uh, that, but, but the idea was I need to go to a place, I need to affiliate with a place and participate in a, in a, in a church that is the most authentic, that historically relates to the most authentic forms of Christianity, but of course they're deciding that. Uh, and then secondly, that the leaders there and the ways that they, they were able to participate in it were authentic to how their understanding of that, of Christianity. So there's two things. One is there's at that point anyway, you know, more than a decade ago, they were still looking at external authority, but the other side of that is they were deciding that that external authority yeah. was the most authentic. So <laughs> <laughs> they want their agency, but yeah, to critique. But yeah, they want the authority of an institution or a yeah. god. Yeah. But what's interesting is that there is this. I mean, it kind of gets to your question about spirituality. There, I wouldn't say there's this massive searching out there, but there's an openness. But it's it's a weird openness. It's an openness in the sense of, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it's fine if you believe that. Um, and so that, I'm not sure what to make of that other than I think that a lot of people's experience with people other than themselves, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in Southern California and, uh, there's some communities here that from the outside you would think are just incredibly white Protestant, whatever right, right. When you go to them. They're really diverse communities and, uh, religiously, ethnically, whatever. And so when you think about that as kids growing up, they're going to school with kids that are as likely to be different from them as like them. And so that has an influence on how they understand themselves and which direction that goes, whether it goes more sort of, I'm going to wall myself off or I'm going to have all these diverse friends. Uh, There's other variables that would go into that, but at least, you know, that you could say that that experience, that diverse experience growing up is different certainly than when I grew up, um, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and even in a way, I almost feel like we were parented to that way that, like you said earlier, I'll, I'm going to, you're going to get the choice. You'll, you'll make the choice. You Mm -hmm. have to make your own decisions in life. And where, you know, before it was like, no, this is a moral mandate. You have to do this to get to heaven. So for sure, I'm going to give you that. Yeah. Well, and, and the biggest predictor on, uh, statistically of people remaining, within their faith tradition is this this kind of combination uh is is parents and home environment and it's not just parents saying you need to go to church but it's parents going with their children to church and how how much in a way this is the way i would frame it but in a way how much that home environment is i guess permeated with yeah with the importance of religion. So it's like, it's part of their lives growing up. Those, those people are the most likely to remain 
within whatever their religious tradition is. And my hunch would be that that would be the same for people that are that have that grew up in that context of you need to make your own choice. The more you're socialized into that, the more likely it is that you're going to choose something that may or may not be religious. Yeah, exactly. And and, and being and really being, I think, um, in tuned. And seeing that the family has integrity to their belief system and they're living it every single day, man, powerful stuff. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Richard Flory, thank you so much for your time, for your insights. Um, love to have you back to continue the discussion as, as we gather more data, as your book's done too. In fact, when your book's done, let us know. We'd love to talk about that again. Power, folks. Uh, it's scary in a way. Many are disassociating, right? They're disconnecting from church, and yet it still comes back if you want to keep uh, religion in your lives and in your family, you got to practice it and live it and, and show compassion. You know, be the Good Samaritan. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. McKenna Boss is in the uh, studio with us, and uh, so you heard our discussion about religion mm-hmm. and some of these youngins, these young adults, they're not – they're too busy. They've got other things they're choosing. Religious institutions aren't as helpful. They don't believe in institutions anymore. And you have a perfect example of what they're doing instead of religion. Yeah. At age 19, they're doing – they're going to become a mayor of a town. Yeah. So in Indian Head, Maryland, yeah. um, they are home to Maryland's youngest mayor. Uh, he was elected when he was 19. He's 21 now. Holy cow. And it's really interesting sort of learning about the things that he's doing in that town yeah. and the response that not only his city is having towards him, but his state in general. How big is this city? So the city itself is um, – Oh, I had that stat here. It's not a super big town. Yeah, it's but... one of those towns that has ha- seen its population rising in the past few years. Okay. While at the same time, um, you've had a lot of businesses closing and leaving. And so it's this really mm. sort of contradictory place. 4,000 people. Yes. We just heard from Terry. That's so, And they, they elect a mayor at age 19. Yeah. What's he doing? So one of his big goals is getting a grocery store. In the town because there isn't one right yeah. now. Right now they have like a Dollar General that you can buy some milk and bread and, you know, frozen meals at. Um, but, to, yeah, they're waiting to – he's, uh, you know, trying to get people, companies to come in and build a grocery store there because huh. that's what his constituents that's what really they want. want. They right need now, a store. They have to travel 17 minutes And away. then all that tax money goes to the next town. Come on. <laughs> exactly. And um, another thing, you know, because they've had sort of this economic – decline in the past little bit. There's a lot of blighted buildings and he's really working hard to get those torn down and Mm. cleaned out because he wants it to become an area for new development. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nobody wants to have to go in and rehash all and and redesign and fix everything. Is he – and the people are liking him? Is he going to get reelected? Does he look like he has – is it working? Well, so right now um, he hasn't decided if he's going to run again. It's huh. like a four-year term kind of thing, and he's about two years in. His whole attitude is, you know, if I'm able to make positive change, then, yeah, I'll run again. And if I don't make the change that I want to make, then I definitely will hand it over to somebody else. Well, how cool compared to, like, maybe the 55-year-old guy that, like, no, I need this job. I mean, this is – I got to – 
keep doing this. This yeah. is my identity. Well, and that's one of the really sort of cool things that um, they argue about having him as the mayor is because he's a part-time college student right yeah. now. He works about 30 hours a week for the city as mayor and gets paid 6000 a year. <laughs> and it's like a great deal. Totally. Because you get somebody who's willing to energy, do that. Energy, that's right. Has the energy and they don't need to be supporting anybody. I mean, he still lives with his parents. That's great. <laughs> but that sounds like, I mean, a, he probably gets contributions from his parents. Yeah, so they have too much him. influence I, I on don't the know. mayor. It's um really cool. He has he's really been praised within the town because he tries so hard to hear from the people. He's cool. active on the you know city Facebook page every day, answering questions back and forth. Um, he started going to town hall meetings when he was in sixth grade and started, you know, campaigning and pushing for That's different great. measures to get passed yeah. within his city, um, starting with signs for crosswalks. And so That's he's awesome. always tried to sort of represent the people. McKenna, that's cool. That's what we need. That's what we need these youngins to be doing. Good job. McKenna, thank you again uh, for uh, always bringing us something interesting. That's cool. Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. You know, if, I guess if they're not going to religion, they're going to go to politics. One way or another, they're going somewhere. we got to fix it, uh, improve our communities, improve our lives. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Friday to you. Also, happy Tortilla Chip Day. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. My favorite. That's my favorite snack of all time. Mm. Chips and salsa. You gotta love that. That's good living, and uh, we got a lot to get into today because it's Friday. We're gonna do a lot of empty news, um, including uh, a guy, a man practicing parkour, falls forty feet down a chimney in Denver. Our very own Shik Shumway will be on the scene, interviewing this this poor guy. And if you if you love all of other Shik's. All the other Schick interviews, yeah. you're going to love this one. Day late, a dollar short Schick, we call him. Good guy. Today we're also going to be talking um, about grief and and can you really die from a of a broken heart? If you remember the story about um, after Carrie Fisher died, Debbie Reynolds, um, her mother, died just, what, a day later, a couple days later, and died of a broken heart. So... Um, We'll be we'll be talking about that. Can you really die from such grief? And there is a name for it. There's a term for it. We'll be getting some uh, expert opinion on that. Also, um, of course, we'll be doing the headlines and the news uh, later in the show. Um, in our final hour, we're going to get into the movies that you got to be looking at or wanting to see. Also, a little, I guess, Oscar preview. There on Sunday. I'm not going to watch. We're going to talk about Oscar's biggest losers because everybody talks about the winners and who they think is the, going to the, win. The American public. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. But we'll be talking about Oscar's so biggest losers. Like, you mean the ones that lost or the ones that won that have become losers? The ones that lost but have endured far beyond those that have won. And also, mm. we'll be talking about. Is the Academy Award the end-all, be-all for someone's career? 
Does that mm. change your career for the better or for the worse? I think your career would be better served by – I guess it depends if you're an actor or if you're a marketer. But I would say the more tickets you sell, box office success is the end-all, be-all. Really? To longevity. Okay. So Transformers will be the greatest movie ever. No. The whole franchise. It will I be mean, multi no. billions of dollars. At it will the box be the office. greatest. It'll it'll create the most work for people that are in the movies. Vin Diesel will never be known for anything other than the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> right. He's been yeah. He packed. tried. He tried to be known for something else, and he came right back to the franchise. He did voice Groot, but he says three words in that movie. But if but if Vin Diesel were the exact reason why the money was being made, mm. I mean, how many movies did Stallone make? He's still making them. I know. And honestly, probably not going to win. Well, I mean, actually, recently he could have maybe won an Academy Award. But Stallone's not known for his acting. He's known he, for his box office. Although he's deal. been nominated for two of them. I know. And, the, I mean, the interesting thing is... He didn't get famous that way. He didn't get famous on his acting. He got famous on killing it at the box office. Also nominated for writing Rocky. Did he write it? Mm-hmm. He didn't even get it. Okay. Couldn't you tell from the dialogue? Yo. <laughs> if, you, if you go back and watch the first one and count how many times he says, you know, he says, you know, about 100 that's, times. But that's that a movie. Philadelphia boxer. That's, what, that's how they talk. Right. Not a lot of dialogue there. Speaking okay, that'll from be interesting. Your, your deep experience with the Philadelphia boxing scene. Oh, I'm there all the time. Oh, no, he's just eating a lot of Philly cheesesteaks. <laughs> ah, love it. We'll get to all that fun. But first, let's, of course, hit the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly on Thursday pledged the military would not be used to expel undocumented immigrants from the U.S. Speaking in Mexico City, Kelly pledged the Department of Homeland Security's sweeping new immigration enforcement rules would not result in mass deportations. Let me be very, very clear. There will be no repeat, no mass deportations, he said. Everything we do in DHS will be done legally and according to human rights and the legal justice system of the United States. The comments came just hours after President Trump called the new deportation push a military operation, which threatened to heighten the concerns of immigrants' rights groups (laughs) and the Mexican government. There will be no use of military force and immigration, Kelly says. Now, this forced Sean Spicer at his press conference to have to address this in clip two. an adjective. It's happening with precision um, and in a manner in which it's very doing, being done very, very clearly. I think we've made it clear in the past, and Secretary Kelly reiterated it, what kind of operation this was. But the president was clearly describing the manner in which this was being done. Um, and so just to be clear on, on his use of that phrase. So it is like a military operation, not a military operation. Yeah. Okay, just so we're clear. Glad Twitter helped us with that one yesterday. President Trump is set to take the stage this morning. I'm not sure if he's there now, but he soon, soon. Usually he runs a little late. Right. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't? At the Conservative Political Action Conference, uh, Trump pulled out of speaking at the conference in 2016 at the last minute. He addressed the group in 2011, only to be booed for claiming Senator Ron Paul could not get elected, and also spoke at the conference in 13, 14, and 15. White House strategist uh, Steve Bannon teased Trump's speech to the crowd Thursday, hinting the theme would be appreciation. 
There's always a theme to something. I wonder if he'll bring up his ratings or his uh, his, <coughs> his electoral college. Yeah, yeah, totally. And his electoral Maybe college. Maybe the first win. paragraph. Yeah. After he says hello, and then cracks a joke. Uh, President Trump is boosting business for at least one U.S. industry. Guess what? the industry. Uh, Twitter. No, it's not an industry. What? They like to think they are, but they're failing. Social media. What? Therapy. <laughs> the Los Angeles totally. Times reports Friday that therapists across the nation have been inundated with patients wanting to talk about the president to the point that the therapists claim no one topic has been so frequently discussed in their offices since the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks. Really? Patients as young as 10 years old have talked about Trump and patients seeing therapists for, quote, issues as seemingly unrelated as relationship troubles or eating disorders have brought up the man in the Oval Office. This all in the L.A. Times again. Patients uh, reportedly complain about insomnia, severe anxiety, and even panic attacks. And it's not just Trump dissenters coming to talk. Some patients who support Trump say they feel isolated because they can't share who they voted for in their workplace or home for fear of being harassed or called xenophobic or misogynistic. Mommy, he scares me. (laughs) My, my boy calls him the orange man. But. The orange man scares me. <laughs> and finally, relatives <coughs> – excuse me – relatives of a 91-year-old Ohio woman who died this week are giving her the last word with a sassy, occasionally profane obituary that starts with the basics. I was born. I lived. I died. Love it. That's it instructs great. Peop- it instructs people to wait the appropriate amount of time before trying to claim her stuff. <laughs> They wrote it in uh, Jean Audie, that's her name's perspective, recapping the people important to her, adventures she had, and her favorite activities. Her daughter, Cassie Odie Clark, the obituaries, uh, celebrates a blunt woman who lived unapologetically, also promises an after party following the funeral, but warns, if you were sick, don't bother to come. I might be dead, but I still don't want to get your germs. <laughs> you know, that's, it really is an important moment. Your obituary is your last chance. To embarrass, to tease, to be you. Make sure you take make good use of it. Sounds I'm like writing were, mine. Sounds like they were arguing over her stuff on her deathbed too, yeah. while she was on her deathbed. You guys, you don't think I can hear you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Nobody. not dead yet. <laughs> Bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet. Oh, that's so sad. Okay, so therapy is going up uh, to deal with Trump, apparently. Or yeah, in or many other different ways. Tensions yes. of the world, right? Um, you know, what about parkour? Because have you I'm tired seen of parkour? parkour? Have you done it? I loved it in uh, Casino Royale. Do you remember that scene? No. The the problem is when it came on the scene and became a thing. Then every movie decided to use it all at the same time, yeah. and now it's just sort of the way the bad guy gets away. Right. Every bad guy can just leap off a building, yeah, like jump a fence, hit right. the dumpster, and he's gone. And you're like, wait, does every person that you know commits a crime, are they all parkour experts? Right. Is that the only way this works now? Because so. – and when did that become a thing? Like, I mean, ninjas do it, right? Ninjas can do it. Right. But when I was growing up, parkour was always more – and so anybody that doesn't know what parkour is, it's anything you can do with your body to create entertainment – out in like a park. It, like you run up against a wall and you flip over. Moving through an urban environment in an alternative way is how they try is to that explain how they define it. it. Without really stopping. Okay. But when I was growing up, they just called those kids hyperactive. 
Right. Or the kid that decided he was going to try to walk across the top of the fence in the yeah. backyard and then fall off and get a tetanus shot, right. he'd be the parkour kid. I now just, I now thought, you just do a wall, jump on a wall, do a backflip, and then you yell, parkour. I thought it was a golfing term, parkour. That's like, parkour. <laughs> like that? No, like par for the course. Oh. Yeah, no. No. So... Parkour. A man practicing parkour falls 40 feet down a chimney in, in Denver. Making, he, was, he was making an alternative route through an urban area. Yes. And, and ended up finding himself down a 40-foot uh, chimney. Ah! He's he apparently goes. really tall and really skinny. Is yeah, apparently like six four and like one seventy. So kind of he's a twenty six year old man, which you'd think maybe I guess there's no end to parkouring, hmm. age wise. Uh, he he was making an action video with his friends when he fell down a forty foot chimney in the downtown Denver apartment building. Dustin Hinkle says that he and a couple of his friends were making the video on the roof of the Denver City Lofts on Thursday, and when he fell through the chimney cover. Darn cover. You wouldn't think the cover would just break, but, you know, it does. And then the next thing you know, you're taking your six-foot-something frame down many, many floors. Um, listen to this, though. Parkour involves moving from point to point using obstacles along the way. Hinkle plummeted down the old incineration chimney until a cable caught his fall. Thank heavens. He was stuck for nearly two hours until firefighters broke through the brick wall to get him out. Um Hinkle, who along with his friends is facing now trespassing charges, says he thought he was going to die and he didn't believe in God until he survived the fall. Hmm. Last hour we talked about how few, I mean, how many people are not believing in God anymore and or in religion. Maybe they need more parkour experiences. But this is one of the coolest things um, I think ever that uh, so we, we Shik Shumway happened to have been in Denver. And Schick is usually the guy that's always late to every interview we've ever had. Well, but, a but lot he, of times he's too early. Or sometimes he's like days too early. Yeah, like when he was waiting for – no. Yeah, like when he was waiting for the inauguration and it was like a day off. Anyway, it's hard. But he happened to catch this interview with Mr. Hinkle. He got a few words from him. Okay, let's hear it. Sir, can you tell us how you got into this mess? Oh, you catch that? In depth. I think he died at the end. Did he die? No, he lived. No, he lives. So Chick got the interview before they got him out. How rare of a moment was that? I didn't know. Does Schick live in the lofts in Denver? He must. I think he shares one with his mom. <laughs> Schick, Shumway. how old is Schick? He's late 50s, isn't he? Schick is, he's got one of those ages where it's like, oh, I thought he died. Yeah. That's neat that he's still with his mom. You know, families are forever. Even in Denver. Sometimes kids are too. So um, there's also another story about a man that, uh, you know, people are just so litigious. Hmm. You know what I mean? Everybody's waiting for a lawsuit. 
So a man is uh, found stands under a loose sign for two days, hoping that it'll fall on him so that he can sue the company. Most people spent Valentine's Day with their loved ones, but Manuel Garcia had other plans. The Texan apparently spent two days standing under a loose sign at a Walmart with one hope that it will fall and hit him in the head. Sounds like something that a Walmart customer would do. (laughs) Don't be rude. I'm a Walmart customer. Me too. I love Walmart. Uh, It's just so fun. It's entertaining. I do a little parkour when I go down the aisles. Super fun. The bizarre goal was supposedly part of a harebrained scheme to build a case to sue the supermarket giant. Unfortunately for him, the dangling sign remained fastened to the wall. Darn it. Whether he was being serious or not, it's still open to debate, but uh, he did post a picture of himself on Facebook about this audacious goal. And he said, let's face it, dangerous. It's a dangerous plot. But now that uh, stupid little picture has been passed around to thousands of people, tens of thousands. Yeah, of and people. he's standing there in the A, and Walmart is kind of I'd love hanging just, there. Darn that properly installed sign. And what's funny, when the, when the sign finally hits him, and he regains his consciousness, he'll be able to read the little disclaimer on it that says, Walmart takes no responsibility for this sign falling and hitting you in the head. Mr. Garcia. If you stand under the sign for more than 24 minutes, we take no responsibility. <laughs> Can't you just see all like a bunch of Walmart employees walking up to him? What are you doing? And they're all looking up at the sign. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the sign to hit me in the head. And then when the sign breaks loose, it'll hit an employee instead, sadly. Then they'll be covered for workers' comp. Totally. You can't you can't sue your way out. Come on. That's not the way this works. Just go to work, Manuel. See, folks, this is the story that you only get in empty news. The Matt Townsend News. Empty. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about can you actually die of a broken heart? Grief. It's uh, It may have some truth to it. Stick with us. Is grief powerful enough to actually kill somebody? The world is still mourning and remembering the death of actress Debbie Reynolds, who herself was mourning following the death of her daughter, Carrie Fisher, just one day earlier. Many at that time claimed that she died of a broken heart. And uh, so we wanted to, to investigate and find out, can a person really die of a broken heart? Um Dr. Kathy Supiano is here with us this uh, on the phone with us this morning to discuss the effects of grief and the and the power it has on a person's health. Dr. Supiano, thank you for being with us. Uh, good morning, Kathy. Is it is it possible really for now? We know that um, Debbie Reynolds actually ended up having a stroke, um, but can people die from a broken heart? Can the grief be so bad at the death or, or the news about something that's so traumatic that it, it could actually kill someone? Um, yes, uh, it is actually a known uh, phenomena, um, and not just um, heart, uh, where a person would die of a cardiac event like a heart attack. Um, we would put a stroke in sort of that same cardiovascular event category. So 
Um, so yes, Matt, it's possible. Um, it is very uncommon. Yeah. Um, but um, it it does speak to the magnitude of grief, um, and something that I think, um, as in our culture, where it tend to be a death avoidant culture, that these things take us by surprise because we really aren't um, aren't uh, prepared or supportive enough in all cases for grief. But this would be this would be an exceptional um, set of circumstances. But the the shock of a death can certainly have this consequence. You you're the director of Caring Connections, a hope and comfort in grief program that they have at the University of Utah. And I mean, I think you're right. We don't. I mean, many cultures, many countries seem to many religions have kind of a, a protocol, a routine you go through to help you through grieving. And it sounds it seems like many of us just try to avoid it uh, until it hits us. Well, of course, death is uncomfortable. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's it's not supposed to be a routine event. We we do want the death of a human being to be something that's unsettling and changes our lives. I mean, that speaks to the value of the human life. But um, you're right. Um, in earlier generations and in uh, more homogenous cultures, there are rules and expectations. And it's not that there aren't um, expectations in the United States. Um, people, many cultures have um, lovely and meaningful observances of grief and bereavement, such as sitting Shiva and in traditional Jewish culture or awake and Irish, Irish Catholic culture. I mean, there are, it's not that there aren't things like that. It's just a larger society just wants people to get over it and move on. And, you know, and sometimes it takes a a death like um, Debbie Reynolds' death, um, for us to say, you know, death is a big deal. And when it comes to grieving people, we perhaps need to be more sensitive and responsive. Of course, people hardly know what to say. I mean, right. that's a true concern that people have. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing, and many times people do say the wrong thing. But... Um, that fear of saying the wrong thing makes people avoid the grieving person, which can contribute to isolation and, and loneliness. Yeah. And then, yeah, then we're not, because there's a catharsis, I guess, in helping them talk through it, feel through it, experience it, sitting with them. And if we are avoiding it, then we don't help them heal. Right. Well, and, um, so I think being present is really important. And in the United States, we tend to do that well with funerals and visitations. And, you know, we're in a, in a culture that brings food and, you know, casseroles and things like that. But, you know, there's sort of this um, thinking in the bereavement care community that sort of when all the flowers wilt and die, the people stop coming. Mm. And so it takes, it takes care and attention. It also takes people being forthright with what their, what their needs are. It's fine to say to people, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay now. I need some private time. It should also be acceptable for grieving people to say, you know, I really am lonely or I would like to talk about it. Um, and particularly in um, in some forms of grief, um, spouse loss and loss of a child are almost uniformly the most 
understandably distressing forms of grief. Uh, there, I think yeah. people do need more support. And the kind of support that they need more than anything is to be able to tell the story of the life of the person who died. I mean, the thing that most um, parents who've lost a child tell me they are most apprehensive about is that their child would be forgotten. And so when, you know, a teenager dies and, and the other young adults come up to the grieving parents and say, oh, we have the funniest story to tell you about your son. I remember when he this and such. And maybe a story the parent never heard before. And that's a lovely, lovely mm. moment. So. That is, that's a great gift, isn't it? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We had a... But, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I had a, we had a friend when we were all about 21, 22 that died young. And um, I no, we don't know what to say. What do you say about your friend that died? But what we did is they, they put all of us in a room because we had so many stories. And it actually it took place during the viewing of this boy. We were in a back room at a mortuary telling all of these stories of this uh-huh. boy. And we were laughing because the stories were so funny, but it ended up being, um, it's a beautiful gift. And every day, every birthday, every year, the family gathers together and they play the audio from our stories. Ah, Good. You're so fortunate you taped it. It was beautiful. So now I'm like, I I suggest everybody find a way to tape as many stories as you can so you can relive them. Yeah. Well, and you've spoken to another really important part of this, and that's the act of remembrance. So, again, in our culture, we're pretty much a snap-out-of-it culture. You know, if you think about even people with generous benefits at work get three bereavement days, Hmm. and you're supposed to be back at work and functioning after that. And again, many employers are generous and compassionate about this. It's it's just that we kind of don't know what to do with all of this. The person crying at their desk, the the person who's struggling to concentrate. Those are all very normal parts of very healthy grief, to cry uh, spontaneously and to have difficulty concentrating. Very normal. Um, But we kind of don't know what to do about it. But one of the things that really does help are these acts of remembrance. And so that's why one of the things that we sponsor at Caring Connections is our um, Seeds of Remembrance event every spring. We think of May as sort of Memorial Day month. But we do this event where people can come. The death could have been years ago or it could have been days ago. And people just have the opportunity to um, hear a a sort of an uplifting story, have some wonderful music. We share remembrance roses. It's Mm. it's a lovely event, and it's going to be this this coming May 2nd um, up here at the University of the College of Nursing in the evening. So... People, so it's accessible for people, and we have a wonderful speaker, Sherry Young. She was the um, was a columnist for the Deseret News, and she'll be speaking about her sister Joy's death. So this is an annual event we do just to address this need, Matt. And I guess families can do it. To remember, I mean, look, my mother-in-law passed away, and uh-huh. everyone gathered and and had a day of basically of celebration for her. Went to dinner, went to the went to the cemetery. And I mean, I guess that's important, right, is is having it, more and more of these. It, it, it is important. It's important because um, both the person who's dying and the person who's grieving, you know, want a sense of that life going forward to inform future lives. This is why remembering our grandparents and our parents is so important. You know, this is true whether they were good examples or bad examples, but that we go forward in our own lives 
with a life that's informed by our relationship with people who died ahead of us. Mm. Now, that's a, you know, it's a little different from um, the situation we're describing with Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, um, but I think one, and I'm not a person who kind of follows the Hollywood yeah. storyline, but um, we know that Carrie Fisher really struggled in her life, and Debbie Reynolds struggled in her life, but that toward the end of their, toward the end of Carrie Fisher's life, they had sort of made peace with Hmm. their, at least on the basis of what we know. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing. They helped, Um, they helped heal probably uh, each other. Does that impact our grieving? Oh, I think so. You know, anytime um, people are grieving a relationship that was loving and um, was filled with sort of mutual forgiveness and understanding, you know, when that person dies, of course, it's devastating. You know, you've lost this wonderful, wonderful person, but people can feel this sense of being settled in that relationship. And mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't come to me and say, gosh, I wish I had told him I loved him. Yeah. They, they say, you know, at least I knew he, he knew I loved him and that I and I felt loved. I mean, and that's a different form of grief than grieving uh, the relationship that should have happened or 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 um, was fraught with strife. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not that one is a better grief or a worse grief. They're just very different experiences. But um, then you 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 understand the circumstances of Carrie Fisher's death and just how shocking it was and. Um, what we understand in this phenomena is that people um, would have had an underlying level of stress, like she would, like Debbie Reynolds would have had, sort of awaiting the news. Yeah, right. Of, of Carrie Fisher's situation, many people thought, you know, she was alive when she had, in fact, already died, and then the shock of the final news. Um, at least metabolically, um, we understand that what happens is people are have a flood of adrenaline on top of a basic high level of stress hormones and that that overwhelms their cardiovascular system and that can present with either a cardiac event like a heart attack or a stroke so hmm. both of those fall under that broken heart syndrome wow. category yeah but it's again, almost like you're backed up chemically yeah and then all of a sudden it all explodes yeah but again this this happens Rarely, I think the most important thing to remember about the human mind and human relationships is that people really are built, actually kind of hardwired to have the capacity to grieve. Um, You know, very few people go through life without experiencing the death of someone close. I mean, I always tell my students the only way to get through life without grief is to either never love anyone or to be the first to die. Mm. And, you know, most people don't choose that. And so we have this capacity to grieve. But what you were talking about, Matt, with loneliness is that grief, even though it's an individual phenomena, is also a social phenomenon. Yeah. That death happens in the context of family or church or community or workplace. And there need to be ways for us to come together. And you know, our understanding is that this actually happened in the Debbie Reynolds, Carrie yeah. Fisher family, that her, their family was able to 
at least in the early days, make some sense and find some meaning in this, which, you know, is a very important part of grieving, sort of finding finding meaning in something that can seem so random and shocking. Absolutely. We're speaking with Dr. Catherine Supiano. She is um, walking us through the really the power of grief and it, even its potential in very rare cases to to have this broken heart effect, this overwhelm, um, this overwhelming to your cardiac system. Um, but there's more to it. Uh, this is grief overall. And when we come back, we're going to we're going to talk, uh, continue our discussion and talk more about what we can do to, to help he, people heal through their grief. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about the impact uh, that the death of a loved one can have on us and others, both physiologically, maybe a broken heart, as we hear uh, kind of in the news, um, but also just the grief and the grieving process. Uh, Joining us is Dr. Catherine Supiano. She is um, a – she's over – she's an associate professor in the College of Nursing and the director of Caring Connections – a Hope and Comfort in Grief program at the University of Utah College of Nursing. And, uh, Kathy, we appreciate you being with us. This is such an important topic, and we just we don't know quite how to react when someone we care about dies. Well, I think you're, I think you're right, and I, so I think there are sort of two things to, to reflect on here. And first is um, sort of, the approaches that people who are grieving can take. And I I think the first thing I would say to people who themselves are actually grieving is to be patient with themselves and to be gentle with themselves, that there really is no quick fix to grief. I mean, some, some people do very well in a short period of time. As I said, some people are um, highly resilient and, and all of us have a resilience to us. Um, But For most people, this is actually a long process. I would encourage people not to think about grief as happening in stages, like you first do depression and then you do anger. We've basically discounted that as, as an accurate representation of the grief experience. Most, most people actually um, move back and forth between times when they are thinking about the person who died with great sadness and between and alternating with times when they are actually moving in the direction of getting the new life going. And both of those things are very difficult. It's difficult to sit and miss someone. It's much uh, harder to um, get a life going and to say, um, gosh, who am I going to get to help me with the bills now that my husband has died? And what steps am I going to need to take um, now that my my son is no longer going to be coming home for Christmas because he died before Thanksgiving? And so those are both challenges, but it's the moving back and forth between those experiences um, that helps 
people move along. Hmm. Um, we, we know that the big stumbling block of grief is avoidance, and people can avoid in many ways. They can force themselves not to think about it. They can become hyper-busy. They can uh, use substances, alcohol, or sedating medications. And, you know, those are just not helpful. So it, I think it's that's just that's those are all just techniques of st- of not dealing with the of not, the thought. not dealing with it. Yeah. But now that said, I, I think it's really important that grieving people, even in the early stages, take a break from their grief. Sure. And, you know, do something, go out with friends and really focus on self-care activities. In fact, when you were telling the story, Matt, about sitting around and and sharing recollections and laughing. Yeah. You were taking a break from the reality of that person's death and focusing on life. Yeah, no, and too. And so that's actually, that was actually a little grief vacation in the middle of very heavy, heavy grief. Yeah. So I think those things are really good ideas. But I think your other question to your audience is, how do we help people who right. are grieving? And I, I think, you know, this doesn't seem radical, but very few people do it. It's just asking people, how can I help you now? And not saying, boy, if you need something, call me. Yeah. But how could I help you now? And even, like, if your best friend lost a child or a spouse, and you know them very well, you would know that sometime they would need to talk about that person. Other times, they don't want to talk about it, and that would be the time where you might say, well, let's go shopping, or let's go out for lunch, or let's go to a movie, so we don't think about anything except the movie, mm-hmm. uh, or let's just go for a walk, because any any grieving person needs all of those things, but they need different things from different people, and also at different periods of time. That's so true, and, and so we, it's almost... Like you can't just have a technique that you use on every person. You just need mm-hmm. to be into each individual person. Right. And to not have hurt feelings if someone says, you know, I just don't want to do that now. Um, so and there's a, there's a reality of letting each person grieve in their own way, which is very important. And then there's also this place where grief is worrisome and can be destructive. And there is a form of grief that we refer to as complicated grief that can actually disable the person hmm. and, and prevent them from going on in life you know, successfully and meaningfully. And what we worry about is when a griever would withdraw from everyone in their life, even those people that they were close to before and trust trusted, if they self-isolate, if the experience that they describe in their grief is unrelenting yearning. If they say, I just don't think I can go on without this person. My life is meaningless. Now, if people say that in the first days or weeks of grief, that's certainly normal. Yeah. But if that, if that situation would go on unrelentingly for months and months, then it really is important to connect with a professional who has training in this area. And there are professionals who have training in this area, myself among them. Yeah. And so I think one of the things to think about is we want to, for most people, normalize the grief experience and say, gosh, even if it's been four weeks and you're sitting at your desk and you glance over at your desk, and there's the picture of your husband, and you burst into tears, you know, that's normal. 
But if you can let those tears happen and kind of get back to work, then, you know, then we would say you're, you're actually in really good shape. I wouldn't worry about that at all. But if there is nothing that breaks through that, that dark, dark gloom of grief and a person is in a state of hopelessness and despair, then, boy, it, it's time to get some. It's time to get some support and attention. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, right. We actually have really good uh, ways of helping people with complicated grief. How do we find a good grief counselor? I mean, one of the down things I get frustrated with with counselors is everybody says, uh, not everybody, but many counselors say they do everything. Yeah. And and but like you are a trained professional expert with a program and um how do we find you in Michigan or you in Florida? Well, actually, um, so uh, m- part of the obligation of Caring Connections, because we are a nonprofit at the University of Utah, one of our service missions is to help people find grief counselors in their area. So, for example, you know there are many fatalities in Utah that are recreation-related, yeah. and people come from all over the country, and if they, you know, if they die on a on a jet ski or something like that happens, um, you know, I would be part of my job to help them find someone back in Florida or Mm. back in Wisconsin. So we can do that. There is actually national associations that do this. The Association of Death Education and Counseling is, is one. But, I mean, we would help people start. Another good source is actually hospice agencies. Even if the person didn't die in hospice, um, meaning they died of a prolonged illness, but died in a motorcycle accident or something like that. You know, hospice agencies that are good, they know their communities, and they know, and many times the grief programs they offer, you didn't even have to use that hospice, especially some of the larger hospices are very responsive to that. And we collaborate pretty closely with hospice agencies. Um, Caring Connections also does training for professionals to give people these very skills that we're talking about. There are areas of psychotherapy that I don't do. It's not, you know, not my specialty, not my strong suit. And, you know, if people call for that, we help them find somebody Mm -hmm. who does what what they want. And so I think it, it is important to spend a little time trying to find the right person. You know, you, we spend a lot of time finding the right auto mechanic. Right, right. Um, and we wouldn't continue with an auto mechanic we weren't satisfied with. Is and, there... You know, a lot of this is also that good relationship between a counselor and a client. Right. And that, and that varies, just, you know, personalities and temperaments and yeah. styles. And Sometimes I, 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 it's like an art important. form, I feel like, that everyone's an artist and and even how they how a therapist can connect to you sometimes feels more you know it's either natural to you it's your natural way or it's just foreign to you so you got to find one that fits you right i think that's a, i think that's a really good point matt a really uh, important piece of advice and it can be a struggle when you're really discouraged oh, yeah. in your shop but Again, you know, if this is something that we can help with. And then the other thing I would really strongly recommend is is support groups. Our, we offer grief support groups and from Leighton to Orem and um, in Midvale and in Salt Lake City. And uh, again, for, for people who do not have a disabling form of grief, but just are really miserable and want to get guidance and support and 
be in a group and recognize they're not the only one who's lost a child or the only one who's lost a spouse, and there are other people who can understand their experience. So our grief support groups are really important. They're eight weeks long. They're they're conducted by trained uh, clinician facilitators, social workers, psychologists, uh, advanced practice psychiatric nurses who really know what they're doing. So these are just eight weeks long. Um, they're very inexpensive. We offer scholarships for people who can't hmm. pay. We offer these groups three times a year, but particularly for people who've lost someone to suicide, to homicide, to drug overdose, it's really important to uh, to, to share that experience with other people who understand yeah. um, and um, and understand that those are actually pretty labeled. Um, disenfranchised experiences to to lose someone to a drug overdose or to to lose an infant. What would you um, say um, as we as we wrap up, Kathy? About um, okay, so there's the professionals I can get my my me to or my family and friends to if if it seems that we need more of that. What could just the rest of us average people, the rest of us listeners, do? To to maybe to even grow in being a more um, skilled, empathic partner through and, and helping people through grief. Well, I think um, first of all, listening is the greatest gift of all, and then also to to recognize that everyone's grief experience is unique, and to not say, "Well, gosh, when my dad died, this is this is what I did, and so you should do it." Um, but really to let that flow. If we think about how friendship works and how families work, there's a sort of a gentle flow that can just happen, and to just let that happen. Most of us, when we're uncomfortable with a situation, you know, like grief or death, we want to solve it. And so the the truth is, of course, you can't solve the death now. And the grief is not a problem to be solved. I think a, an important way of thinking of this um, is is that you you can sort of accompany someone on this grief journey. You can't do it for them, but you can be there at important times when they're stumbling or weary on this journey. Yeah. And yeah. then at that point, just to say, what's the best way for me to help you now? And and. Take that advice, not and, expect them to do necessarily what you have to offer. Yeah, and step in and and uh, and love them. Um, powerful stuff. Kathy, thank you so much. Again, Dr. Catherine Supiano. And if you um, go look up Caring Connections, a hope and comfort in grief program at the University of Utah, a great place, uh, resource in Utah in the Intermountain area. But also, they may also be able to answer other questions in other areas of the country as well. Um, but look for grief counselors in your area. There's, I'm sure you'll be able to find them. Don't give up. Find the peace. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Well, if you're short, you probably have never experienced what it's like to be tall. And if you're tall, it's probably been a while since you've been short. Do you ever wonder what it's like to live on the flip side? Today, we'll get a taste from both perspectives. One of our producers, Leanna Tan, is going to hash out the pros and cons of being short versus being tall. 
Yesterday I was at the store, you know, just trying to buy my produce like any good customer. But when I looked for the little plastic bag to put my zucchini in, I couldn't find them anywhere. Only to discover they were located in the most inconvenient place imaginable. About three feet above my head on the wall. Who puts produce bags there? You know, sometimes I feel like life would be a lot easier if I were just tall. It's a life I know nothing about. I started wondering what life as a tall person would be like. So I decided to bring in my friend Zachary Ireland to give me a first-hand look. How tall are you? I'm six foot five. What? I am five foot one. Fun size. But sometimes I wish I were tall because I don't know why, but in my apartment, I have the tallest cupboard. And so I'm always really hungry because I can't reach <laughs> my food. So I just want to know, like, what is it like being tall? I can't fit in a lot of desks now. I mean, do you remember when you'd sit at the desk and your feet would hang over? And then you became older. My feet can touch the ground. This is amazing. Wait, this is the way it's meant to be. And I was just too small before. Yeah, but I just, like, I haven't gotten there yet. So do you like being tall? It's great. I hit my head all the time. (laughs) When my mom would be like, go down to the food storage, grab this. Dong. Like, without a doubt. That totally explains a lot. I can never find jeans that fit my legs. Yeah. And so I always have to cut them. And when bell bottoms were in style, it just looked really weird because you just have this fray at the end because who has time to hem pants? I'm so glad skinny jeans came into style, but I still Mm -hmm. always have to roll up the bottom. I experienced the other end of that and that jeans won't be long enough. What's it like always being in the back of photos? It's really easy to find me in any school photo because I'm always right in the middle and in the back. So I, I do enjoy that aspect. I'm a little jealous sometimes. Except that, I mean, can you ever sit up on your bunk bed? I can't lie on my bunk bed, <laughs> if that's what you mean. You can't even lay down on your well, bunk bed. if I do, I... if my feet get really cold. Have you ever been to a concert? Yeah. Oh, I hate concerts. Why? And dances and all social gatherings with groups of people. Wow. Because I stand out like a sore thumb. But you can see what's happening. Yeah, that is a nice plus. I still go. I just won't be at the center. Because no, if you're around the edges, no one will notice how freakishly tall you are. You're the person that people are like, lift me on your shoulders. It's really hard to talk to tall people because I have to crane my neck. It gives me neck cramps and like I feel like I have to yell like, hello up there. Pro tip, take a couple of steps back. It actually helps a lot. Have you ever wished you were short? When looking at shoes a few times. I feel like there are always tons of size nines. I can find plenty of shoes, but sometimes they have like Dora the Explorer or something on them. Yeah, I was going to say, that's really hard to find in my size. Have you ever broken your phone just from dropping it from your hand or from your pocket? I'm sure there are examples out there. See, that's one good thing about being <laughs> short. Is so close to the ground. I'm so close it's to the ground. Cool. And when I drop my phone, it doesn't break. See, it's like I don't even have to pay for insurance. It's great. Just chop off your legs and uh, you'll save yourself some insurance money every month. On, the, on that same note, actually, it becomes offensive when I see phones like the iPhone Plus. And it just looks like a regular phone when I hold it. The iPhone 4, that looks like a tablet in my hand. Looks like An a gum iPhone. pack, actually. It's in my pocket and they're like, hey, do you have gum? It's just too small. What do the tops of people's heads look like? Everyone has a slightly different swirl on their head. Yeah, some people go either direction, like counterclockwise, clockwise. Whoa. So what does the top of my head look like? Your head is a good shape. Yeah, I can't tell you about the tops of people's heads, but I can tell you what their stomachs look like. I mean, the feeling of different people's shirts on your cheek. Let's just talk about the awkward hug. What is the best approach to hugging a tall person? Because when I hug a tall person, I just am buried in their 
stomach. I have nothing against you just doing the snowman hug, as I call it, and just keeping your arms directly at your sides. Not going over the shoulder, because that just makes it hard for everyone. Oh, I undoubtedly will smell your hair. So if I'm planning on hugging any tall people, I need to wash my hair that morning. Pro tip. And pro tip from a short person, if you're going to hug a short person, don't do it after the gym. What if you, like, drop stuff or, like, lose change on the ground, you know? Oh, I'd just leave it. If it's smaller than a quarter, it's probably not worth bending over for. <laughs> One benefit of being short is, like, I can find everyone else's loose change. It's like I earn money by being right. short. Like, here's your recompense. So do you have any tips out there for any of those tall people or short people? Keep growing. Oh, and on behalf of all tall people, how's the weather up there? It's kind of old. Dang it. Huh. I actually feel better now. Being tall isn't all great athleticism and towering confidence. Tall people have struggles, too. I guess being short isn't all that bad after all. So, whether you're wearing high-water jeans or frayed bell-bottoms, just enjoy life at the perspective the universe gave you. Happy growing, everyone. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's Friday. This is the final hour of the week. We can only give you one more hour, folks. Then, yeah, then we got to let you go. That's hallelujah because it's the end of the week, not because we only have to listen to one more hour of the show. Oh, okay, yeah. That's, Just wanted to clarify. That was a good clarification. We got uh, we got a great uh, program because it's Friday. We'll be talking movies today with Rod Gustafson. Plus, um, Jeffrey's going to lead us in a discussion about the biggest losers from the Oscars. Right. Because you'd think there wouldn't be any losers. And the losingest winners. Huh? If that makes sense. Not really. No, it doesn't. Hmm. Doesn't make much sense. But because people can win the trophy, they can win the big award, and it doesn't necessarily mean their career is going to just take off. Or you could not win the award and end up better in your career than those who did win the award. So what good is it? I don't know that I even want to watch this time. I don't want to watch it. Because it's, I know it's going to get really political. I, I think I'll just watch with a political bingo card. So every time they mention Trump, you get to put another piece on the... Yeah, every time a winner mentions Trump or says... Anything. You know, something about bans. Yeah. Then I get to, I get to put a little mark on my list. I mean, it's just... I just, wanna, I just want something without politics involved. Well, then don't listen to the show. I think I'll just hang out with my wife. (laughs) Maybe take care of my grandbaby. It's going to be good. Okay. Because you're free Friday night. I'm free every night. Oh, great. But you find it offensive that people might think that you're free. No. I love being free. Everybody, I got nothing going on tonight. Actually, here's the problem. No, I know I'm free, but my wife thinks when we're free that she has to fill that spot with – You just can't hang out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with that, some that's housework. Frustrating. That's frustrating. No, no. With just more friends. <laughs> Things to go Dinner. to. Yeah. Last night, last week, uh, I went, I think it was Friday night, I went to, maybe it was a Saturday night, I went to watch the BYU Cougarettes 
do their dance concert. Wow. I know. I don't even I, – I don't have a cougarette. That is a friends and family only gathering. Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't know random... I was a friend or a family. You're but not. you weren't invited either, right? I wasn't even invited. No, my wow. wife didn't. I was going to say my wife took me. What did she look on some social calendar well, and go, we have We have friends that are – and friends. We have a lot of friends that are have children on it. Sounds like your wife has a lot of friends. She does. Matt just has a wife. My wife – knows everybody wow. so i we I obliged and it was fun but i was it, it wasn't it was a wonderful experience it really was an incredible experience but right. the big takeaway for me was i found three new songs that i should be playing and i went and bought them on itunes during the show okay well. so that you can keep up to date with the kids <laughs> yeah trying to stay hip what would you have rather been doing really yeah i'd rather just be watching netflix there you go have you seen Rogue One yet? No. Oh. No. You'll go see La La Land and see the Cougarettes. That's but those you were still date, those seen were Rogue dates. One. And my those were dates. Both of those were dates. So we just in, when you're in the date, you just serve your spouse. Do you? Because yeah. you're on the date too. No, but but I kind of I see a lot of movies anyway. But my wife doesn't see as many movies, so we're gonna go where she wants to go. See? Mm. Yeah. So that's what we did. So we'll is be this, talking Is movies. this your mediator self getting the best of your better self? Does that make any sense? No. Your true self. It's your mediator self getting the best of your this true self. This is essence. It's, Matt would call this, this your essence. This is called essence. my essence. My you're, essence does what the spirit would say to do. My see, ego says, no, what about me? Your true self wants to watch Netflix. Your mediator yeah. self goes, well, this is how we make everyone happy. No, my marriage self says I have to lose myself to find my marriage, so I need to lose myself more. By the way, that kind of sounds like a perfume, the essence of Townsend. Ooh, let's do a – let's find a let's, – let's, let's find a but it company has, that is has to be it. whispered. Yeah. has to be whispered. Townsend. Wow. And they throw in like a crow. And it has like an earthy musk smell mm. to it. Yeah. <laughs> Something earthy. <laughs> With lots of Is that leather? animal pheromones. <laughs> hey, uh, we'll get to all that fun. Plus some empty news, of course. Hero of the day, of course. BYU Sports Nation will be on the show in a bit as well. Got a lot to get through, but let's start with the headlines and see what happens there. Terry, what's going on around the country? President Trump on Friday morning, so earlier today, lashed out at the FBI on Twitter. He had a rant calling the agency to find and punish leakers in the wake of a CNN report casting his administration in a negative light. According to the cable news outlet Thursday evening uh, report that came out, the FBI rejected a request from the the White House to knock down reports alleging communication between Trump allies and Russian officials during the 2016 presidential campaign. Trump tweeted... That's really difficult to say. Trump tweeted, tweeted, the FBI is totally unable to stop the national security leakers that have permeated our government for a long time. Trump wrote in response, he went on and said, they can't even find the leakers within the FBI itself. Classified information is being given to the media that could have a devastating effect effect on the U.S. And then all caps, he put, find now. Find him. Now, moving on. The State Department memo that was leaked to the Washington Post warned Secretary of State Rex Tillerson of the dangers of leaks to the media. <laughs> Did you get that? Yeah. So a document about leaks was leaked talking about leaks in Sounds a very leaky, leaky way. 
the front page document or four page document prepared by legal counsel concerned information labeled SBU, sensitive but unclassified, a category in which the memo itself was placed. Instead of leaking information, the memo suggests state employees should use the internal dissent channel to express their concerns in a manner that can be confidentially facilitated, open, creative, and uncensored dialogue with professionals, not yeah. the media. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. But so the president goes mad about leakers. A State Department memo on leakers gets leaked to the media, warning <laughs> the Secretary of State about leaking information. It's a lot of... A lot of leaking happening. Yeah. Vice President Mike Pence on Thursday defended the Trump administration's plan to repeal the Affordable Care Act, telling conservatives in Washington that America's Obamacare nightmare is about to end. Despite the best efforts of liberal activists around the country, the American people know better. Obamacare has failed and Obamacare must go, he told an audience at the Conservative Political Action Conference. Hmm. Despite protests against the repeal at town halls across the country and concerns about a lack of replacement even within the GOP, Pence promised an orderly transition to a better health care system that finally puts the American people first. He did not provide any specifics on what the replacement plan would be, which is the tagline to every one of these stories. Right. And finally, yes. in New York's Times Square... There is a Kellogg's cereal restaurant. You go in there, oh, yeah, you pay six bucks, you get a bowl, and you eat cereal. Yeah. Right? For this week, that cereal shop, restaurant, whatever it's called, yeah. has been transformed into a Pop-Tarts cafe. Oh, now we're talking. Yeah. While almost 20 flavors of the beloved toaster treats are retailing only a dollar per tart, the real reason it was to visit the Pop-Tarts Cafe is for the sugary mashup creations. Mm. Here are a few. Okay. On the menu are everything from birthday fiesta nachos. Those are $9. Made with confetti cupcake Pop-Tarts with strawberry salsa. You know, salsa, yeah, air quotes. Air so, quotes. And frosting cheese. Chili Pop-Tart fries. Ooh. That's $8. Made from uh, chocolate Pop-Tarts and cookies and cream Pop-Tarts, as, as uh, they call that ground beef because it's the chocolate look to it. Mm. So it, it looks and resembles this food. It isn't actually like chili Okay, um, good. Pop-tarts. Yeah, it just, just it's a, all yeah. sweet. Mm. Uh, Pop-Tart burritos. Those are $12. It's served with kiwi salsa and frosting for sour cream as a replacement. Yeah. Imagination is in full force as you dig into the, uh, what do they call this, Tex-Mex-inspired Pop-Tart creations, but the play-like food is too tempting and colorful to pass up. Well, they were really going with a theme, weren't they? Like, yeah. But- Nachos, burritos, yeah. Yeah. Chili fries. But none of them would taste like that or even actually really appear like that. No. But if you look it up. I bet you would eat these. Oh, I would eat it in a minute. I'm it's, it's eating just it just thinking about it. Big piles of dessert. I would eat them if they actually tasted like those items. Mm, that's weird. <laughs> Why would you want chili cheese on a Pop-Tart? Why would you go to a cereal bar? Why would you want a Pop-Tart? Because. Why are we on this earth? Millennials eat cereal for dinner, so that's what you go do. You make a restaurant and people show up and pay expensive amounts to just eat the cereal they can buy at the store for the same price. Some people are just serial fanatics. Serial snobs. Yeah. I have a son-in-law that, that he'll just eat that all the time. If, that's, if we just said, hey, we've only got Frosted Flakes to feed you for the next week, he'd be like, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be going. He'd be going for it. Okay. So much, to, so much to get into. I don't even really know where to begin. But I'm just going to begin with some empty news. How about that? Um. Power company sends fire-spewing drone to burn trash off of high-voltage wires. 
Was this the Eagles drone? Or is no, this different? No, that was the different drone. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. You thought it was the Eagles drone? Yeah. No. Uh, the Eagles drone is to get rid of um, drones... In France. In France. They have an eagle that attacks drones. And the eagles are big in France, apparently. They're not the band. It's oh. not the band. That's the mis- it, the, the That's bird. where we're misunderstanding. Okay, what about the band, the band drone? No. There's that, no. That's no. not a thing. This okay. is actually a, this is a fire-spewing drone that, you know, those, those just irritating bags... Yeah, they're like plastic the bags plastic you get bags. at the grocery store. They get caught on they power lines. They get caught lines, on fences and power lines. Yeah. But on a power line, it could cause arcing, I guess. Right. That could be a problem. Be some problems. So they sent this drone out in northwest China uh, to shoot fire on the bag and melt the bag so it doesn't, I guess, create arcing. And But it seems like you're going to melt a bag with fire on a line. Maybe cause more problems with the blowtorch than Come on. you would with the bag. Don't all men wish that they had a blowtorch to clean things up? Oh, yeah. Get these leaves out of my yard? Totally. In fact, even uh, when I lived in Argentina, we didn't need a blowtorch, but we made one. Right. Why because not? we were tired of starting our fire every morning for our to heat up our, our apartment. So, you know. We would just we just built a blowtorch with a match and some hairspray. Yeah. No, I didn't have access to a blowtorch as a child. But right. you know, you're a kid. You come up on a pile of ants. What do you do? Yeah. Well, I get my magnifying glass out. There's that approach. I did the charcoal lighter fluid and a match. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But you're just you're just exploring, right? And if parents would make blowtorches more available, I wouldn't have to use charcoal lighter fluid. A blowtorch drone. That would be awesome. So China's doing it. Uh, you know, it's a high I, voltage wire. You don't want to have your guy climbing up there. Yeah. And apparently, a little fire on a wire isn't a big deal. I, I guess. <laughs> Good news. Did you see the drones and the tiger that have hit the? I mean, there's a bunch of tigers somewhere. I can't they, remember. They, someone flew a drone too close to a pack of tigers, and they pounced on the thing. Bengal tigers. It. They yeah. were playing with it. They were teasing the tigers until finally the tigers got the drone. They were flying it close to the ground, so the tigers just jumped on it. Yeah, we need to post it. It's super cute. If you want to see uh, a bunch of tigers chase a drone, Mm. super cute. (laughs) Then when they get the thing down, you realize this is what it would feel like if you were really being attacked by Mm. a tiger. Then the drone started to smoke, and these. then you realize that tigers aren't very smart because they just – they seemingly just kept gathering around the smoke. They were afraid of it at first, and then they'd go back into it, and none of them were coughing. Mm. So apparently they're all used to smoke. Did they get their whiskers trimmed at all? Yeah, I didn't see that. Mm. But they're just cute as can be. So uh, you got to catch the tiger drone. We'll post that at Dr. Matt's show. You're going you're gonna to not want to miss that one. Um, and by the way, we've been talking a lot about the FBI and Donald Trump. He's, mm. he's mad with the FBI. Yeah. And the FBI is kind of like, whatever. Sure. We're not here to be your public spokespeople. Right. You know, we're just here to investigate you. But an Iowa City police say a man pretended to be an FBI agent while at a local Burger King. The police report states Michael Barnhart, 28, approached employees and asked about a vehicle in the parking lot. The report states Barnhart pretended to speak into a portable radio while speaking with employees. Just talked into his wrist. Yeah. Um... Parked his car and then called into the store. While the phone, while on the phone, he identified himself as an FBI agent and said he had been watching customers for 15 minutes and was looking for someone. 
Earlier that same night, Iowa City police received a similar report coming from a downtown area. That report included the same vehicle and suspect description as the incident at the Burger King. Was he just trying to get a free burger? I don't know what he was doing. I mean, would you pretend to be an FBI agent? I would. I've been watching a crime show lately. I'd pretend to be a... A uh, what do they call them? Special agent. A special agent, but the ones that are the behavior that do behavioral analysis on people. Right. The BAU unit. There I'm you from go. the FBI yeah. behavioral analysis unit. Right. That's what I would pretend to be. When I was a young teen, maybe 12, I tried to pass myself off as an adult really? at a video store to rent an R-rated movie. So I went home. Wow. I put blocks in my shoes to appear taller. And I had kind of a deeper voice for my age, so I figured I could fool them. Is this a true story? I, uh, I penciled on some facial hair. You've been doing that a long slicked time. Slicked back my hair, put on some sunglasses, and I rode my bicycle over to the video store. To get an R-rated and movie. And I went in and uh, told them I wanted to rent this R-rated movie, and uh, they just laughed at me. <laughs> and they said, you're funny, come back and we'll give you a free movie next time. Wow. So I didn't walk out of there with the R-rated movie. Good. Shouldn't be paid for your crime. By the way, this is a story my brother shared uh, during his uh, wedding speech at my wedding. Oh, really? He, so he it's brought up the fact that you you really thought you were going to get away with that. Yeah. Did he mention the fact that you still put makeup on to look like you have a beard? And wear lifts. And wear lifts. Did he mention that? No. Poor guy. That's a crazy story. I did not know that you were that rebellious. That was probably the peak of my rebellion. I would just go to choir, sing. I was in the choir. Yeah, the choir that watches R-rated movies when you're 12. I don't know what choir that is, but well, I'm not going to be in heaven. I, I didn't get to watch it. Remember, they didn't rent it to me. Oh. Did you try again? Did you keep trying? I think I just called next time and said, <laughs> yeah, my kid can watch an R-rated movie. He'll be picking it up in his FBI van. <laughs> He's parked out front of the Burger King. Okay, good stuff. Hey, happy tortilla chip day, by the way. Forgot to mention that. You know, go home on your way home because it is Friday. Pick up a bag of chips, maybe some salsa, mm. and have yourself a fiesta. We will take a break when we come back. Rod Gustafson will be joining us talking about movies. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This sounds like a tribute to La La Land because uh, maybe they're going to sweep it. Who knows? But who better to, to ask about the movies than our next guest, Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com. He's a film critic specializing in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective. And Rod, are you there, my friend? Hello, Matt. How are you? The big question is, are you there? Or I, are you just one of those, maybe you're one of those, you know, like they've got those chat bots now, and maybe they're going to have a talk show bot soon. Ooh, I, I'm sure they will. He does sound like a robot from time to time. Sometimes yeah. I am a robot. Yeah, that's it, what I thought too, Jeff. The yeah. funny thing is, is it really, um, it, it's not that hard to replace a talk show host. Je uh, okay. Jeff replaces me all the time. And oh, there you go. he's not even a bot. 
That's right. <laughs> Sometimes people think we sound the same, so I just present myself as Matt. That's right. How does that work? You know, work? you two, as seriously, you two have fooled me in the past where I'll be on with <laughs> Jeff and I'm thinking, I think that's Jeff. Is that Matt? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's we were we were brothers separated uh, at birth and raised by different families. It, no, it's the Utah accent. It's know, totally really. is. it's that twangy Utah accent. <laughs> hey, uh, so what do you think? The big uh, the big award ceremony is Sunday. Do you want to pick any winners? Well, you know, I, I'm still if if I was a betting man, which of course I'm not, that would be bad. But yeah, La La Land for sure. But I have so many friends that I tell them go see La La Land, and I've kind of backed off from that because I'm learning that La La Land is a film. La La Land is a film geek movie, and I know why the industry loves it. I know why the critics love it. I know why I love it. But you've really got to kind of be into film and movies. For the casual moviegoer, I get so many yeah, people that say, that's it. why that one? Like, I really, really like Hidden Figures. I really like Lion. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like Arrival. Why would you pick La La Land? That's so, exactly what I feel. See, yeah. Matt, Matt has the geek part down pat, but yeah, you don't know, get that. Don't he's get not wrong. a huge film fan. No. Yeah. But I loved yeah. every and, other movie you just mentioned. But well, I, don't, you know, I didn't love La La Land. What you need to remember about most of these film awards, um, well, I always knock the Hollywood foreign press a little more than I should. They aren't really film people. But all the uh, all the other awards, for the most part, are film people. And film people see things in La La Land that I don't think general audiences do. You know, like the editing and the and the the costumes and and art direction. You know, things like Ryan Gosling really did have to learn how to play the piano in that movie. Oh, you know, really? and, and stuff like that. And yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Amazing film. So there's yeah. there's something behind it. Um, one of the things I know I want uh, you to talk to us about because I I don't get movie ratings. I don't understand mm. what constitutes an R, a PG-13, because it just seems to be changing. Is it one swear word? Is it a certain swear word? Is it the dismemberment of a human being? What is it? Yeah, I know. It's really complicated. And when you say it seems to be changing, it does. It It's changed a lot. I mean, I've been doing this now for <laughs> 25 years. And film ratings change quite a bit. Part of what can change them is just kind of societal attitudes will have sway on things. The other thing that happens is they'll get a new manager of the MPAA, which is the Motion Picture Association of America. They'll get a new CEO. And Jack Valenti was a guy. He was there for a long, long time. And uh, when he finally retired, I think around the end of 2006, uh, just shortly before he passed away, um, then we got a a new guy in there. and, uh, And that was Dan Glickman. And immediately I noticed how the ratings started changing. And Glickman was the guy that came out and said, you know what, we should have more NC-17 movies, which you know, I didn't really agree with. And, and so it, it will kind of shift around and change quite a bit. So, yeah, you're not the only one that, um, that feels that way. And some of the changes, like I will get people who will say to me, like, how come there, there's so much more? You know, it, it depends what a person's sensitivity is. But they'll say there's so much more sex or there's so much more violence. And actually, that's not always true. When you look back at the history of ratings, for example, the PG rating is the one that's changed the most because they didn't have a PG-13 until the late 1980s. Hmm. And if you look at PG movies in the 1970s, you'll find films with full frontal female nudity right. in the PG rating. Yeah. Yeah, don't and watch of course, 
Yeah, don't watch 16 Candles or Airplane with your kids in the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's Kramer versus Kramer. There was an extended, I think it was about a couple of minutes scene of a woman completely naked talking to a young boy. And uh, and so, and PG. Oh, wow. So things like that, it does shift. But then other areas shift. And now today, I believe that we have more violent content, for example, in the PG-13 rating. You will, you will see a lot more violence than what you saw originally when that rating first came out. Well, and it, it, who's making the decision? Because it, their values may not be my values. It's a secret. I can't tell you. It is <laughs> Does a anybody secret. know? Is, so uh, under the MPAA, which most people have heard of the MPAA, and they're, so what that is, is an organization that's financed, I think, by seven major motion picture studios. They all toss a little bit of money into the hat and, uh, and run this industry lobbying organization, which is what it is. And it lobbies to protect the, um, they work on a lot of copyright issues and don't copy movies and this type of thing. But the other thing they do is they administer the, classifica- the classification administration, Classification and Ratings Administration, that's what it's called, CARA, C-A-R-A. And that is the actual film ratings board. And it's made up of a, of a group of people that um, you really don't, you, they don't release who the names are. There was a documentary that came out a few years ago, this film is not yet rated, that uh, dove into this a little bit more, this documentarian trying to figure out who actually sits on this board. And they look at the movies and then they assign a rating to the movie. Hmm. Crazy. And so we do notice a few patterns. Like, for instance, there's a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of an inside joke that if you're a foreign film, you'll likely get a harder rating. And I hate to admit that, but and I, I think maybe that's getting a little bit better. But it was very evident for a while there that content in a foreign movie that did not come from one of the major studios that was financing the MPAA just always seem to get a little bit more of a restrictive rating on huh. it than what the same movie would that was coming out of Hollywood. Yeah. It was interesting. Jeff brought up a, a point about of the nine Oscar-nominated uh, best pictures, how many of them were ours? Four. Four of yeah. the nine were Which R-rated. is very unusual. Meaning too high, too low. Meaning most of the time the bulk of the movies nominated for best picture are R-rated. And Rod, you mentioned one of them's PG, right? Hidden Figures. Yeah, Hidden Figures PG, which is, um, yeah, which is obviously we've had a few. Um, we will frequently get PG-rated animations that are nominated, thanks mainly to Disney and Pixar. Hmm. But uh, to get a live-action one now, the last live-action PG that we had was um, The Artist, and I'm trying to think what actually, year that was. Was that 2010 or something? That was actually PG-13. Was the artist PG thirteen? Yeah, the, I mean it's it's oh, all thematic okay. issues, and somebody gets flipped off, and there's drinking and smoking. Yeah, well, so. I forgot about that. Yep, yeah. you're right. It was PG thirteen. Thank you. I mm. was thinking that one was PG. Okay, I need to do my homework. You need to you and you and Jeff need to go to lunch more. Well, now Jeff, I just pulled up something here. Okay, the Deseret News is wrong too. Because I'm just looking at an article, Jeff Peterson, the Deseret News. He says the PG rated the artist won the best picture race. So he got it wrong, too. Ah. So it's not just me. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) See how that works? Hey, Rod, I wanted to ask you really quickly. I know you're not uh, reviewing any movies this weekend, or at least not on the show. Do you have any plans to see the film Get Out? 
you know, it screened here. I it screened here on Wednesday, and I didn't go see it. I worked on marketing. Can you believe oh, it? Rod. I worked on our new podcast and stuff. I didn't go see it, but I have a film critic buddy who said he was really impressed with it. It's got a, it's got a lot of. Uh, I think it's violent content, and quite a bit, quite a bit of profanity in it too. Uh, I'll pull it up. We've got a. You know what you can do, even if we don't review the movies. We have. A lot of content uh, information as well. Frequent explicit violence, uh, frequent use of the sexual expletive and variations, and sometimes in sexual content that immediately gets an R rating. By the way, hmm. you know the you talked about the bad word a minute ago. Yeah, there is one bad word. We know what that word is, and we call it the sexual expletive. And, uh, and that's an automatic if, R. Well, no, you can, you're allowed one, maybe two. I think as long as whole... it's, yeah, as long as it's not used in a sexual connotation. Yes. But at the moment it goes into a sexual content, context or usually three or more, you hit an R rating. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's the sexual context. That's the big thing. So, yeah. So it's, uh, and I think get out, well, get out. Okay. So it's kind of a, a middle R because here in Canada, see, this is the other thing we look at. What do the Canadians give it? It's got a 14A up here, which is kind of like your PG-13. Huh. So it's, it's kind of on the lower end of the R. And uh, whereas we get movies like, I think I was surprised. I think it was Fist Fight, the, the goofy one about the couple of guys getting into the big fight at school. Um, I think if I remember right, it's getting 18As in Canada, which is a pretty pretty severe rating. So we were surprised at that. That sounds like yeah, a good little system sure Canada's got up there. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it up because it's that rare movie on Rotten Tomatoes. It has over – it has 115 reviews and 100 percent of the critics gave it a positive review. I hadn't looked at that. It's got a 100 percent on RT, really? Yes. On the so tomato meter. That is almost impossible to accomplish, especially with yeah. that many reviews. Yeah, no, that is. That's a big sample. Okay, well, then maybe I'll wander into the theater and go watch it. I, um, yeah, our, um, like I say, I have a movie critic friend. He was telling me yesterday, he says, I was, I was really quite surprised at how good it was. So huh. who would have thought? Yeah, Matt thought I was telling him to go see that movie, but I was actually just telling him to get out. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> get out! The movie? <laughs> it's, no. It's get the, out. It's, from what I hear, it's the African-American version of Stepford Wives. Which which is kind of um, interesting. It's an interesting play differentiation. What's Good. the word I'm looking for? It's a cool concept. Mm. Just a but yeah, just another version. Yes. Um, well, it sounds like you're you're ready for the weekend. Popcorn is that what you do? How do you? What's your as we let you go? What's your final? What's your? How do you sit down and watch the Oscars? A guy that's seen pretty much all the movies. <laughs> uh, let's see. How do I sit down and watch the Oscars? Usually, I have some. You know, we break out the good snacks. Yeah. You know, you go, you go buy the stuff. Uh, brand names are okay, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, like, you go to Costco and you buy all those things that you think, oh, gee, that's too fattening. I shouldn't buy that. And you go and you load up the shopping cart and then you heat them up. All those, you know, all those quick cook yeah. kind of uh, dumpling Asian things and mm. with sauces. And, mm. yeah, yeah. That's how I do the Oscars. It's yeah. Not, you know what? We should have you over. Come on down. Yeah. Oscar party. Have an Oscar party. Well, Rod, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work up there. Next week, I'm sure we'll be getting back to the movies. And, uh, you know, really, I've got to figure out a way for you and Jeff to go out to lunch. 
because he's got so many things to talk to you about. Can we, you pay with that two hundred dollars yeah, no, you found in your pocket? Well, you know, I'll, I'll check my other codes. Maybe there's more money in there. I've already spent that two hundred. We'll take a break. Come back, and when we come back, we're going to do just a, a little summary about uh, Oscars big losers. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. I love this music. Hey, uh, because the Oscars are this weekend, Jeff has just, he's giddy. He's excited and he's been researching, you know, maybe winning an Oscar isn't the best way to grow your career. Right. So Oscars biggest losers, as I, as I like to call them. So there's this kind of kind of this idea that if you win an Oscar, you can be cursed. Oh, in yeah. fact, there's this one actor in particular who has a curse named after him, the F. Murray Abraham curse. <laughs> He's the actor that won Best Actor for um, Amadeus. Do you remember Ooh, yeah. Amadeus? Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Movie. And uh, you know what, though? Who, now, who's He's this guy? F. Murray Abraham. I don't think I've heard of the guy. Exactly. He hasn't had much of a career, it seems, since he won the Oscar. But he says he's he's kind of have a, has a positive attitude about it. The Oscar is the single most important event of my career. I have dined with King, shared equal billing with my idols, lectured at Harvard and Columbia. If this is a jinx, I'll take two. Ooh. Now, not everybody shares his optimism when it comes to winning an Oscar and having their careers dwindle after the fact. Marsha Gay Harden, do you know who that is? No. Exactly. (laughs) She won an Oscar for the film Pollock, Best Supporting Actress. And she says the Oscar is disastrous on a professional level. She said in 2003, suddenly the parts you're offered become smaller and the money less. There's no logic to it. Weird. Why? And now her latest parts are, I think she's the matriarch of the Grey family in the famed Fifty Shades of Grey movies. Oh, really? That's her role? Yeah. Academy Award winner is now just Mm -hmm. a throw out. Some other actors who have experienced some lulls in their careers following an an Oscar win, Adrian Brody. Uh Uh-huh. Don't know him. Yeah. Uh, Gina Davis. I know her. She won once and was nominated for another one, but that was way back when she was nominated for Thelma and Louise. Okay, yeah. I think the last thing I saw her on, I didn't watch it, but she was on the show The Exorcist on Fox. Wow, really? A TV series. So she doesn't do much these days. Mm, Um, Halle Berry was the first African-American to win the award for Best Actress. What's she been doing lately? Well, she did that movie Catwoman, mm-hmm. which was completely panned by critics and fans alike. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. won for Jerry Maguire. Yes. He seems to do a lot more made-for-DVD made for movies these days, although he is experiencing kind of the beginning of a comeback with the uh, – he did that show, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Yeah, he played right. O.J. Simpson. But then again, today, whose career isn't benefiting from O.J. OJ. Simpson? Seriously, OJ. If you want to, if you want to boost your career, do something about OJ. Mm. That seems to be the way of things. And then a couple of others: Mira Sorvino and Roberto Benini. Just yeah. haven't done much these days. Where are they? Yeah, Gone. exactly. The curse. So I, I wonder, like at work, does this happen at work too? When somebody gets promoted, like Don upstairs, yeah, you know. Do, do they start experiencing resentment from other people? Is it because there are higher expectations and maybe they're not able to deliver the, mm. to those higher expectations? Or, or is it that they just expect that you're going to be harder to 
you're going to have to pay them more. You're going to right, it's right, just, yeah. All the expectations. So sure. another way to look at this: what about films that have won Best Picture, but the losers? And this is where the biggest losers come in into play. The movies that lost have endured far longer than the movies that won. They do better. Okay? Huh? So I'll go backwards here really quick. 1999. Did you ever see Shakespeare in Love? Uh, yeah. You saw it. And but you I kind don't of, remember anything about it. Right. But you probably remember Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Showed all the time on TV, right? especially around yeah. Memorial Day. Uh, Steven Spielberg won the Oscar for Best Director, but he didn't win for Best Picture because that went to Shakespeare in Love. And yet Saving Private Ryan has yeah, gone dwarfed. way beyond. Yeah. Interesting. 1991, Dances with Wolves. Did you see yeah, that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which one do you think has endured longer, Dances with Wolves, which won for Best Picture, or Goodfellas, which did not? Oh, that frequently I'm, appears on yeah, I'm top lists, and you know, but Dances with Wolves that was a great, that was a great, flick. right? But it may have been greater for just its time. Yeah, right, sure. Okay, a couple of others. 1953. You probably didn't see this. The greatest show on earth. No, but that's the circus, right? The circus. Wow, I'm surprised you even knew that. The, the movie that that beat out, High Noon, and which High is considered Noon, to be one of the greatest westerns of all time. This is the most glaring one, in my opinion. Yeah. 1942, How Green Was My Valley. I don't know. How green was your valley? <laughs> uh, it won Best Picture. Okay. Guess which film it beat out. Hold on. What year was that? 1942. Uh, Gone with the Wind. Citizen Kane. Holy cow. Which consistently, yeah. they always come out with these lists, and every time they change the other movies on the list, but the one movie that stays consistent is Citizen Kane, See, the greatest American movie ever made. You, Rosebud, you've right? made it. You've made the point. Nobody needs to watch the Oscars because they're useless. Yeah. Or, you know, just realize <laughs> that movies that win might just be popular for the time, and they're going to have a really short shelf life. You know, and winning isn't everything. Uh, an example I thought of with this is uh, Lisa Kudrow mm -hmm. and a, an actress named Julia Sweeney auditioned for Saturday Night Live at the same time. Do you know who Julia Sweeney is? No. And yet she's the one that won the part on Saturday Night Live. And Lisa Kudrow didn't. Lisa Kudrow Lisa. lost on Saturday Night Live, went on to Friends, and made, started making a million dollars an episode. And I think she's in uh, a Best Picture nominee this year. That's why I don't go for any awards. Yeah. Because there's probably more money not having awards. Well, you've probably had some foods that maybe taste good going down, but then they have like a bad aftertaste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they don't sit well and they, you gain weight. That's it. Every food. Some foods have a little more substance and they keep you full for longer. Good point. See, this is why we have you in on the movies, Jeffrey. Because you watch them. Okay, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. Wrapping up the week for us, folks. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. It's the fun music, which means it's time to go to the fun guys down at BYU Sports Nation. Our good friends, uh, Jerem and Jason today. Hello, gentlemen. I that, don't have a voice. That's on our business cards, actually. The fun guys. The yeah. fun guys. I lost my voice last night. What happened? Were you screaming at the women's basketball game. I know, so. And I have a cold. Oh, brother. Yeah. You... Luckily, 
Spencer Linton will be back tonight. He's doing the Iowa gymnastics meet and then women's hoops tomorrow. I can just take it easy this weekend. You 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 make me sad and depressed. With like such I, a I, voice. I feel like he's doing like golf or something. Like yeah. it's, it's very hushed. It's uh, is Tiger Woods about to putt? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is about uh, Roy, Roy McIlroy. It's about a twenty for birdie on seven downhill, twenty eight feet. <laughs> it's gonna be a very mellow BYU Sports Nation I, today. See if I know if I exert myself, I will lose my voice. Okay, you so don't got to pace myself at like a level four, you, and you have a big show to still do. There's a lot going right. on. Huge show. Have, listen, Huge. Listen, we're talking about uh, first the guest lineup. Jason, who's who are our guests today? Okay, listen to this. Uh, Jamal Williams, you may have heard of him. Who? Okay. Exactly. BYU's all-time leading rusher. Uh, Max Hall, former BYU quarterback. Wow. May have heard of him. The winningest quarterback ever. Yes. Oh, and then a guy named Spencer Linton who, who? witnessed huh? BYU destroy Portland last night. Yeah. So uh, all three of those high-profile guests will be on BYU Sports Nation today. And in case you missed it, BYU schedules a road and home game with an SEC opponent in football. Tennessee. Tennessee, baby. When is it? We'll give you the deets. A home and a road. Wow. Yeah, like a true, like a true one for one. It's great. And then uh, basketball last night, Elijah Bryant, 39 points as BYU uh, beat up Portland. The Cougars play number one Gonzaga tomorrow. Now, why so a lot going on. Why isn't Spencer staying up in that area? Because he has gymnastics yep. and women's basketball to call. And hoops tomorrow. I know, yeah. but why don't you do gymnastics? That wasn't part of the deal, I guess. Okay. I did gymnastics for four years. Did you? Yeah. Just give me a little play-by-play with your with your golf voice. Here's the of thing a gymnastics. With, here's the thing moment. with gymnastics. I'm not the play-by-play. I'm the narrator. Okay. And then the analyst becomes the play-by-play. Oh wow! It's, it's unique because I can't describe what's going on. I'm yeah. She's to... kicking her leg up. <laughs> but I'm the narrator. I'm like, now we go to the beam where so and so's career high is X, and mm. Guard Young, the head coach, said this. And then I good. just kind of watch, and yeah. then the analyst will describe it. Man. That's how, it's actually the – if for some reason Spencer can't get into town or whatever with snow or whatever, mm-hmm. I'll be ready to go. Well, not with that voice you won't, not to be rude. Well, that voice maybe is I'll just you and my you and McGregor into Moulin Rouge it. <gasps> Ooh. I don't understand the reference. I'm not going to explain it either. Just take it. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to take that. Yeah, I'm not sure where to go now. I, I mean, watch Moulin Rouge, I think so that is the, the first Moulin Rouge uh, reference I've ever had on the show. It's the weirdest, craziest, best movie ever. It's really? so strange. It's so strange. That movie's very strange, but it's great. Hey, um, here's a question for you. you have you heard about uh, the, the breakfast cereal bar that they have in downtown Manhattan? No, let's no. hear it. So it's you can go there and get cereal, but um, I think it's I think it's owned by who is it owned by? Oh, I have heard about it's this. It's like Kellogg's, I think. Yeah, Kellogg's. And in in Times Square, they have a, a bar where you can go order whatever cereal you want and just have like a six dollar bowl of cereal. Oh, I have. I think. Yeah, I have heard of that. It, yeah, yeah. Sort of the first thing I thought of, honestly, when I saw that, was I'm like, oh, that's uh, that was me in the MTC minus having to pay for it. Because <laughs> they had those big dispensers of <laughs> yeah. cereal. Could eat cereal as much as you wanted for any meal. It was great. Oh, that was good living. Center. That's wow. where you knew. That's seriously. That's where you knew what heaven would be like. <laughs> Seriously, um, so much uh, crunch to, berries. We won't need to eat, but we can. But know? now, now what they're doing is they're not just offering cereal. Now it's a pop tart bar too, so you can go in and get a little pop tart cafe. Oh, interesting. So here's the question: Would you rather have like they have a meal that looks like they made it look like a pop tart? Um, what do they call it? 
like uh, like a pop tart fiesta nachos. So it looks like nachos, but it's really pop tarts. It, it's pop tarts. Like it's all pop tarts, and it's frosting. And so, would you rather have a cereal bar or a pop tart bar? Cereal, cereal bar. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, really. Pop tart. There's not as many flavors. Wow. But I'll, I'll eat cereal anytime. My, uh, my wife, it yeah. drives her insane. Like, we'll, we'll get done with, like, a very large meal, and I will then immediately go to the pantry and grab a bowl of cereal and get a, a box of cereal. Why? How do you have something Because it's like I need, I need something sweet. I don't know. Maybe I have a tapeworm. I don't know. Yeah, it's probably a tapeworm. <laughs> <laughs> it's Still a tapeworm. Mission. <laughs> 20, I don't know, but I will eat cereal anytime, anywhere. So I'm going cereal bar. Oh, huh. my heavens. Yeah, I, I, I think I do Pop-Tarts. Really? Yeah, because they're portable. You know, you just here's eat. the question in regards to that. Yes, I am usually a brand name guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but when it comes to pop tarts or uh, toaster pastries, depending on, I prefer the generic to the name brand. I think they taste better. Do you really? Yes. Like I will take a generic pop tart. Over ah. over over a a name brand pop tart any day of the week. They're fluffier, uh, they're softer. Yeah, I think they have a little more flavor to them. It's one of the few times I will go generic versus. I don't name see, brand. but I don't like the names of them like Top Plart and Smart Dart. <laughs> I don't like that. Smart Dart. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's something else. I wouldn't mess with Smart Dart. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that is something else. <laughs> the, the flavor's not very good. No. This tastes horrible. <laughs> Uh, Okay. We will leave you at that. Good luck. Uh, Good luck with your show, and uh, we'll meet you at the Pop Tart Bar after. This stinks. Cereal now. Yeah. Good luck. Peace out, yo. Oh yeah. Good times. I knew if we talked Pop Tarts, and we drilled long enough, we'd be able to get into a vein. Well, those those are the important questions. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean. We've talked about everything else on the show. It's a three-hour show, for heaven's sakes. We've talked about Trump. What do they want from us? What more do you need? We can't do everything. So um, (laughs) I just can't get over that. I've never had an off-brand Pop-Tart. Have you? That doesn't seem like something you do. I don't typically eat Pop-Tarts. I haven't really since I was like 10 years old. Yeah. And even then, my parents never bought them. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, I'll, I'll get you some. It's a staple for the students here at BYU. Hey, uh, three were arrested for shooting fireworks at police. West Virginia, this crazy story, three people face felony charges. We have some audio from the scene in West Virginia. Three people face felony charges after shooting fireworks at police officers and passing traffic from an apartment complex. Police responded to a shots-fired call around 10.45 a.m. Wow, they're really – they got a lot of them. Uh, This was on Saturday, and um, this is in Pontiac Grand – at at a white – a white Pontiac Grand Prix was – had some people in it firing the the, – what's it called? Fireworks out of the car. I mean this is like crazy. Just unloaded on them. Just (laughs) unloaded. It sounded like multiple gunshots, um, and and officers re- returned to the scene. They went back, and while they were there, they tracked it all down to a nearby apartment. The driver of the white Pontiac was located shortly after um, with some people inside the apartment, and they had bottle rockets in his car. Officers armed with tactical vests 
and assault rifles surrounded the apartments and began calling out the suspects, at which point a bottle rocket was shot from the apartment toward the police officers. Which isn't really what it sounds like. Can you imagine a rocket launcher shooting bottles at you? That'd be so painful. I think, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, not a bottle being shot. Um, the standoff ended after an hour with uh, three people voluntarily exiting the apartment. None of the three suspects took responsibility for firing at the officers. What? What? All three were arrested. No injuries were reported. You're going to fire bottle rockets at a cop? Like, are you nuts? Like, they use real bullets. They called SWAT in. Nothing worse. But that's not what you think it sounds like either. These are just a bunch of guys that have fly swatters. Yeah. You take things too literally. You've offended the crowd. Sorry, everybody. Sorry. It's Friday. It's late. He's tired. He had a he, – he, remember he was in Reno on Monday. Everybody remember that. As you know, we like to wrap up the show with a hero story, and uh, this will be a good one for the end of the week. Hero uh, catches a teen who fell 20 feet from a mall escalator. An alert shopper is being uh, called a hero after he caught a teen who fell from an escalator in Missouri earlier this month, according to KTVI. Surveillance video shows two teenagers playing near an escalator inside the South County Center on February 4th. The teens are shown grabbing the moving handrail and holding on until it lifts them off the ground. One of the teens held on for too long and was dangling 20 feet above the ground when she started screaming for help. Seconds later, the escalator handrail forced her to let go. Mark Malloy stood under the girl and caught her before she hit the ground. Are you kidding me? The girl, who was not injured, left the mall before Malloy learned her name. The girl's friends thanked uh, him for catching their friend. Mall officials issued a statement thanking Malloy for saving the girl. The mall also said horseplay near escalators is against the mall conduct policy. A lesson for all of us. So be careful when you go to the mall and no horseplay. Save the horseplay just for around home. That's it, folks. That's the show. We'll be back Monday morning, bright and early, with more ideas, information to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Until then, make it a great weekend. Take care of each other. We'll talk again Monday.